You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 456. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's episode, an Indonesian passenger jet crashes, having disappeared four minutes after takeoff. Boeing will pay the U.S. $2.5 billion to settle fraud charges over the 737 MAX. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, weather the weather. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 456 is ready for pushback. Yes, he is. That is Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! And most importantly, of course, he is the announcer for the Airline Pilot Guy Show. We do appreciate that, Roger. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, and joining me today from her lakeside studio in South Kakalaki, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. I still love that intro. (laughs) It just gets... I did it one breath. Cracks me up every time. (laughs) All Good right. to be here. Glad to see all you guys. Looking forward to a great show today. We are as well. Great to see you, Steph. And also joining us from his mobile studio in Cincinnati. Cincinnati, Cincinnati. World traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hello, everybody. Might as well be Cincinnati, Rick, since I live here now, apparently. <laughs> okay. But, uh, <laughs> so happy to be back. You don't sound very happy about that. a great show. <laughs> well, okay. Hey, I love Cincinnati. I know, and you love Reserve yeah. as well, don't you? Exactly. All right. That's what we hear. Reserve in Cincinnati. <laughs> and from his studio in the English countryside on permanent reserve, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, Retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Oh, hi there, Jeff, and hi, crew. Great to be back on and looking forward to a super show. Uh, Is my hair starting to look like I've been in lockdown for a couple of months now? Your hair has always looked like that, Nick. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It looks wonderful. Looks like you just went through makeup and hair. All right, let's get on with the news. Stand 
survive on news. Okay, we're going to start off with one crash uh, that is, seems to be in the news uh, quite a bit lately. It was a tragedy. It was a 737, not a 737 MAX. Thank you very much. Uh, journalists, take note. Don't mention 737 MAX in the same article as this crash, please, because this airplane was a 737-524 registration. Papa Kilo, Charlie Lima, Charlie. It flew its first flight on the 13th of May, 1994, being delivered to Continental Airlines. And then, how do you pronounce this airline? Sri Swijaya? That's pretty good. That's about as best Sri- as I'm going to do. Swijaya, I have no idea. Oh, I think... Our uh, translator, Steph, will be able to tell us exactly. This, this will be the official pronunciation. Go ahead, Steph. This is a language that I unfortunately do not speak. No? I'm sorry, I cannot help you. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to say this Sri- Indonesian. Srivijaya? I, I like Sw- yeah, that. Sounds Swijaya. I, I like mine Sri- the best. Jaya. What do you think, Liz? Okay. Sounds good, Jeff, always. Okay. Liz has gone with mine. She's voted for me. Okay. Um, took over the aircraft in May of 2012. Um, let's see. The only incidents that this airframe has had were bird strikes in 1994, 2004, and 2005. Uh, in March of 2020, at the start of the pandemic, it was parked at uh, Surabaya for storage. In November of last year, the aircraft was inspected for an extension of its aircraft operating certificate, AOC, uh, to December 2021, and a few weeks later, it passed its inspection as part of the airline's return to service procedures. The Boeing 737 resumed service on the 19th of December 2020 with its first passenger flight on the 22nd. Now you fast forward to January, is it 9th? 9th. Yeah, 9th. January 9th. Uh, so let me find the actual narrative here. A uh, 737-500, flight 182 from Jakarta to Pontianak. Indonesia, with 56 passengers and six crew, had been cleared to climb to flight level 290. It was climbing through about 10,800 feet MSL out of Jakarta, about 11 nautical miles north of Jakarta's uh, Sakarno-Hatta International Airport. It was over the Java Sea when radar and radio contact was lost with the aircraft. The aircraft has so far not turned up anywhere else. Okay, this is the original report. Of course, they did find the wreckage, uh, debris, uh, and body parts were located in waters of about 15 meters depth near Langkang Island. No survivors. So we have a few updates here. They did find the uh, flight data recorder, and it has been successfully downloaded. And all 330 parameters are recorded, uh, recorded are in good condition and are currently being analyzed. They also found the... Just recently, I think on the 15th, they found the uh, CVR, uh, but they are still looking for the memory unit of the uh, assembly. So, uh, so far, not good with the cockpit voice recorder recovery. Unless there's been recent news that I didn't see. I did check this this morning, though. Um, So, um, yeah, uh, kind of interesting. Um, They don't really have any other... Data, well, of course, the flight data recorder data that we that hasn't been released yet. So I would imagine that maybe the investigators have some idea of what happened to the airplane, but uh, we don't know anything about it yet, except that it just it crashed. Have yeah, you- there, it was just the one where I, I saw a little bit of um, flight radar twenty four, 
it made it look like it was on a relatively straight climb out. Then it began an unexpected turn, mm-hmm. and then it sort of appeared to spiral downwards. Um, so yeah, the, well, around the uh, there is another there is another one uh, that we're going to talk about a Citation um, jet, a Citation Five over Oregon, that ah. did that. Uh, but this one was flying a heading that was not um, the assigned heading. I think they gave them a 075 heading, but it continued to the northwest. And uh, that's when they first realized that there was something going on with uh, okay. the flight. I may be confusing the two. Don't worry about me. Okay. But no, was, that, was that, uh, I'm sorry, guys, was, was that heading uh, 075 something they requested or, or something that was assigned by ATC? I think that that was something that was, ass- I think that was assigned by ATC. And I don't think it was a uh, part of the departure procedure. I think they gave them that vector. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I'm remembering that correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, it, uh, it didn't uh, fly that heading. I guess that was, or maybe it was supposed to fly that general heading. And it, they noticed, the controllers noticed that they, we're not that we're continuing uh, to the northwest. Um, wish I could find that uh, narrative. Sorry, everybody. Um, it's right above the yellow highlighted. Oh, part. okay. Uh, Liz is telling me it's right above the yellow. Okay. Departure control subsequently noticed that the aircraft was not on its assigned heading of 075 degrees, but tracking northwesterly and queried the crew about the heading at 1440 local time, but received no reply. Within seconds the aircraft disappeared from radar thank you liz mm, there it is yep interesting so, um i don't I mean, know no I, uh, the, the one thing the one thing i know i mean having haven't flown in and out of that particular airport many 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 times myself um obviously we're not going to know till till the um uh the fdr and the cvr um uh, are available um but uh, the only thing that I can think of right now is perhaps uh, something weather-related. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, weather out there is uh, even even you know uh, uh, relatively low, you know, in, in, in the in the low the low uh, ten thousand, fifteen thousand. Uh, weather can get uh, pretty severe in that uh, in those latitudes, particularly over those uh, warm waters there. So uh, perhaps they were. Uh, avoiding weather uh, of some sort, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't think of anything else. There was a blurb about the weather in there. Was that specific to this? I couldn't find the... Oh, where did it go? Well, it, the airport Monsoon was reporting... More heavy rainfall, low clouds, thunderstorms mm-hmm. in the vicinity. Yeah. At about the time of the crash, the at the airport, it was showing some light rain, but in the yeah. area, there was heavier rain. In fact, somewhere in here, uh, they mentioned the fact that there were... A couple of flights that had to um, go miss um, trying to get in. Uh, Two aircraft inbound, inbound had to divert as a result of bad weather. Okay, there you go. And, and the, yeah, and what I'm seeing here, the problem with the problem with that uh, with, with weather in that that part of the world, um, uh, particularly when um, when you are in IMC conditions, you uh, encounter what are called uh, sometimes um, embedded cumulonimbus, which are your CB type clouds, uh, uh, very very high energy weather, uh, very um, fast uh, updrafts and downdrafts. Uh, the problem is that you can't see them because they're embedded in the uh, in the clouds around them. So the only way to navigate around those is by using your your weather radar 
and uh, this being a 737-500, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an old airplane. It's, uh, it's, so the 500 came about as a replacement to the old 200, except this 500 here came with um, the higher bypass ratio CFM 56s and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and some uh, avionics uh, updates and all. Um, but it still has the 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 old uh, radar where you have to manually control the gain of the unit and the uh, angle of the antenna. So there's a little bit of um, I mean it's not rocket science, but you need to know, you know what to do and and how to operate it for you to get the uh, information that you need to safely navigate around uh, embedded. Uh, Oh, you would think that that crew would be pretty, you know, oh, used yeah. to have, you know, doing those kind of procedures, flying that part of the world. And, uh, it wasn't an inexperienced crew. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I'm wondering, do you think that, uh, the airplane being in storage for most of the year last year had something to do? I mean, it, they, it was worth mentioning at least in some of the reports. Um, I'm wondering if there one, you know, if there's something, you know, linked to that long-term storage and, uh, Perhaps. I mean the only uh, the only thing that uh, and, and actually there's there's been uh, I remember one accident that comes to mind is that uh, the Bergen Air seven fifty seven out of the DR back in ninety seven I think it was it was a seven fifty seven hull loss and that wasn't it 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 had just uh, been on the ground for you know a a short period of time compared to this seven thirty seven which had been in storage and uh, the, the the issue with that ended up being um, uh, the a uh, an insect making a uh, pedo tube its new home and oh. then um and then uh they started having uh issues with uh, unreliable airspeed and that turned out to uh to be the uh the end of that flight sadly hmm. um but um i mean i think i think it's something that's always mentioned in these cases you know like if something happens after a period of prolonged storage it's it's something that's taken into Account I'm sure you know, depending mm-hmm. on what they find with the plate data recorders, TVR, all that type of stuff. Um, but you know, it was back in service on the 19th of December. Exactly. So, so it had it, been flying around. So yeah. I, I don't think that uh, the fact that it was in storage uh, would be an issue. Okay. Well, I'm hoping but that I guess we, we we won't know. Yeah, and you know, the fact that they do have the data from the flight data recorder, and they're still looking for the CVR. I'm hoping that maybe. Next episode, we'll have more information about some of the readouts from the and the parameters that were recorded, and perhaps there might be a better idea of what happened here. And yeah, right now absolutely. we don't know. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, set that aside and uh, talk about a uh, one of our favorite airplanes here on the show, the seven forty seven. Right, Rick. Ah, yes. A Western Global Boeing 747-400 loses its wingtip at Columbia Airport in South Carolina. Now, I have to object to that. I I don't think they lost it. I I think they know exactly where it went. (laughs) (laughs) They lost it and then immediately found it? Yeah, they found it next to the airplane. Adjacent to where it was left? Yeah, adjacent to the pole that they hit. (laughs) Uh, at the airport, uh, let's see, registration November 356 Kilo Delta, Kilo Delta was converted from a passenger to a freighter aircraft and was had been previously operated for Japan Airlines and Atlas Air. Uh, there's the problem. 
Uh, the aircraft lost the wingtip when it clipped a lamppost at CAE, which is Columbia um, International in South Carolina. The damage can be repaired, but it will cause precious time and money to be spent during the peak holiday freight season. This happened a few uh, I've got weeks a question. Ago. Since yes, when has freight gone on holiday? Huh. Well, I don't know. It's a good question. Well, I mean, I mean, freight doesn't get a holiday, let alone a peak holiday season. Well, here in the U.S., the uh, this is the freight season. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. I mean, and, and not not holiday as in vacation. Holiday as in you know <laughs> Santa Claus. Like it's, it's it's a holy day if you're huh? into freight. Okay. It's it's a very holy day. Fair enough. Yeah. It, I don't know. Who's the patron saint of freight, please? Um, hmm. Well, I know who the patron saint is of uh, flyers, pilots. It's uh, Saint Joseph of Cupertino, the flying yep. friar. But I'm not sure about cargo. Hmm. Okay. I think uh, I think he and, uh, he multitasks between the two. Does he? And okay. uh, what happened yes. to Saint Christopher, please? Um, Was he demoted? Oh, he he's in there too. Um, but I I think Christopher is kind of a. A legendary character, as far as nobody knows for sure if he was a real person or not. But uh, St. Joseph of Cupertino was real. He wasn't a pilot, but he did fly around a lot on his own. Fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, there's your your Sunday school um, segment. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so yeah, just thought we'd throw that in there. It's just always not a great thing to see pieces of airplanes getting knocked off. Now the the I mean the thing with the seven forty seven it's got such a large wingspan you're talking about two hundred and thirteen feet and and so when when you taxi these things around you have to be dead on center line because in, in, in many places um, uh, the clearances are are very very small and another thing um, to perhaps keep in mind to you know for those of you who fly the seven forty seven is to uh, uh, you see, nowadays we have these electronic flight bags with uh, airport moving maps and uh, an own ship on the airport moving map, so it, so so you know which way uh, which way to go, where you are, where to turn, all that stuff, and it and it updates in real time. So you, it's like you're it's like you're seeing your position on the navigation display. The one thing about that that you have to be careful with is that on the airport moving map, uh, you will never get. Um, uh, very, very important information as to the uh, wingspan that a certain taxiway can handle. For that, you have to go to your 10-9 page and always look at your 10-9 page first. Look at all the notes, what your um, uh, projected uh, taxi ride is going to be, and see whether an airplane your size can taxi down that uh, down that taxiway. So, you know, refer... Your airport moving map to the ten nine, and then back to the airport moving map. Oh, oh just things. ask Rick because he's got it all memorized. Yeah, <laughs> just we'll we'll give you his um, telephone number, or his cell phone number. Yeah, and okay, then right. if you're somewhere and you need to, want, you know, you just text him. Yeah. Hey, hey Rick, hey, Rick. any airport I'm in, in the world? <laughs> Narita C thirteen. Does that work? You're good. You're good. You're good. No, and, and the only reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is because is because uh, um, a couple of years ago there was an uh, an incident in uh, in uh, BWI with a seven forty seven that uh, taxied into a uh, deicing bay, uh, and it looked fine on the airport moving map. Conditions weren't exactly great. Uh, you know, it was a little snowy and visibility wasn't that good and all that. 
and they taxied onto the de-icing bay, and then they took out a wingtip as well. So mm. uh, uh, had they gone down to the uh, and referred to the 10-9, they would have seen that uh, maximum wingspan for that particular taxiway to go into that de-icing bay would have been X, and uh, that would have avoided uh, the, the incident. So, you know, yeah, lo- so just refer to, refer to your 10-9 always before you go back to the AMM. Also, think about the fact that you have these things that are sticking out on either side of your <laughs> fuselage. Um, sometimes you got, we had a, uh, an MD 88, um, an 80 series at, uh, Acme, uh, a couple of years ago at Nashville. Um, they were maneuvering the airplane on the, and th- these tend to happen as Rick is talking about de-ice pads, uh, ramp areas, that kind of thing. Not necessarily the taxiways. Cause they, you know, I think we're, we're usually pretty focused when we're, traveling on taxiways and they have pretty good clearance um, unless you've missed a note like Rick was saying as far as you know max allowable wingspan and that kind of thing but it seems that a lot of these accidents or incidents happen on uh, areas of the airport that aren't on like charted taxiways and there was a uh, an Acme jet that was uh, maneuvering to uh, I think they had a wheels up time to Atlanta so they decided they would just pull over you know, just get themselves out of the way on the ramp and uh, swung around and uh, and just nailed a uh, a light post uh, almost halfway down the span of the right wing, and it put a four foot gash. So not yeah, even like the wing was, tip, like no, no, no. Down. It was um, yeah. They they pretty much um, yeah. I think they had to replace that wing. It was it was a lot of damage. Yeah, not a good thing. Wow. But you have to be careful about that. Um, yeah. So, absolutely. I mean, and not only that, and so even, even at, uh, even at airports, uh, uh, regular taxiways, uh, when you, when you get into, uh, airplanes, the size of the 747-8 and the 380, there are specific taxi routes for that airplane alone because of its, because of its wingspan. Um, and even, even runways. So there's certain runways you can't use at certain airports because of the, uh, clearance required, uh, between uh, the runway and the taxiway, so these are things that, that once you get onto the onto the uh, uh, the larger airplane scale, um, you have to start looking at these things and, and, and be careful because you know. And uh, in the, I, I don't know about the three eighty, but on the seven forty seven, uh, on the dash eight particularly, uh, it is you can you can see your wingtip, but you have to kind of you know move forward and kind of look all the way back and it's you know three city blocks down that way and uh got to keep in mind that that's behind you so uh do you remember that uh 747 at johannesburg british airways oh they, yeah they uh, they kept going straight past the end of the runway down track and took the top of a building off oh yeah uh-huh. that was pretty what? impressive yeah, <laughs> yeah that was I uh, remember that. <laughs> yeah. that was uh, i do remember talking about that yeah yeah, they uh, they kept going straight instead of making that little uh, that dog leg to the to the mm-hmm. left there to keep going down the runway. They just took the uh, the top of the building up, and that I mean it's a testament to the strength of the wings. But uh, yeah, it's not it's not it's not how it's supposed to go, you know. It was <laughs> so, uh, not it, recommended. It was an no. unscheduled um, uh, remodel of that uh, unscheduled remodel, and that was uh, and actually help. the uh, the airplane was uh, after that happened that uh, they took that airplane off service. It was just uh, too too expensive to repair, and that was mm-hmm. it for it. Wow. Yeah. So be careful out there, people. Um, Darren in the uh, chat room asked a question, a good question. I think if a pilot such as this 
747 incident hits the wingtip like this, are they typically automatically fired? I would say no. No, 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 no. No, I mean, obviously, there's going to be some investigation. There's going to be uh, uh, a couple of different people involved. You're going to get the union involved, obviously. Uh, yeah. And uh, they're going to see what happened. And, uh, I mean, the idea here is is, is not to, I mean, unless there was um, obvious intent to do something wrong, which nobody goes out to work thinking that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea here is to apply the corrective measures so that it doesn't happen again. So, yes, but but no, no, not 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 necessarily. In general, I think, uh, especially if you're flying for a company that is uh, unionized, you're, you're going to have exactly. protections that you're yeah. not automatically going to be fired. It's a good question, though. It's a good question. Yeah, it is. Okay, uh, let's go on with uh, this next one. Um, Boeing, the last couple of years, hasn't had. Uh, you know, good time at all. And uh, they just recently reached a $2.5 billion agreement to settle a criminal charge that it defrauded the U.S. government by concealing information about the 737 MAX, the ill-fated jet model involved in two fatal crashes that killed 346 people. The plane maker entered into a deferred prosecution agreement last Thursday in the Northern District of Texas In turn, the Justice Department will dismiss the charge against Boeing after three years if the company cooperates with the government, including by making current and former officials available to testify before a federal grand jury or in trials. Uh, This is from David Burns, Acting Assistant Attorney General of the Justice, Justice Department's Criminal Division. He says, The tragic crashes of Lion Air Flight 610 and Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 exposed fraudulent and deceptive conduct by employees of one of the world's leading commercial airplane manufacturers. Uh, The settlement caps a two-year criminal investigation into the MAX, which crashed twice in a five-month span and devastated Boeing's reputation for engineering prowess. The company's admissions are highly unusual and stand in stark contrast to decades of airline accident investigations. While Aircraft designs have often been cited as contributing to accidents. It's extremely rare for such issues to be linked to intentional deception by company officials. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, so uh, this is unusual. And um, I guess if they play right uh, in the next three years, then they'll finally, uh, I guess, be off the hook, so to speak. Of course, that does not keep... um, individual claims against the airline uh, for people that have lost uh, loved ones in these accidents. So that, right. This that's was just the, still... the government uh, criminal charges that they were settling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there could be a lot more money spent in the mm-hmm. future regarding these things. So yeah, the, the, the brand just suffered immensely because of this. <clears throat> yeah. And it was um, something that was, um, that shouldn't have happened. And um, the loss of life, which is the most important thing here, is something that you cannot replace. Nope. And so, um, I mean, hey, just don't do this again. Just yeah, yeah. I think uh, so many people were quite astonished uh, after they learned some of the facts regarding how the airplane was certified, and um, you know some fraudulent uh well i'm not going to say that but 
it, some very highly. I just gonna say, I think it's it's going to stand out in history as you know a way of or a, a example, um, probably the example of how things can go wrong and be kind of snowballed and perpetuated, and you know how not to let those things happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Unfortunately. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that the government, particularly, well, the the FAA, felt very aggrieved that they hadn't been kept fully in the picture uh, regards uh, how the aircraft was progressing and about potential problems uh, that the company didn't admit to them. So I I have no doubt that this settlement, the severity of this settlement, uh, reflects um, the fact the FAA were mightily upset with Boeing as a result of this. And we also must point out that the FAA wasn't completely off the hook either. They there were some things that were not great with um, no their participation no. as well. So here's an incident uh, regarding a uh, DC three at uh, San Felipe on the 11th of July 2018. Uh, foreign object damage on landing causes runway excursion. An Air Columbia Douglas DC-3 registration, uh, Hotel Kilo 3293, performing a flight from Puerto Enrida to San Felipe. How'd I do, Steph? Okay. (laughs) Nope. Yeah, that was fine. Sorry, I was (laughs) distracted by uh, Rick's text messages there while you were reading. Oh, looks like Rick dropped out, huh? Did he lose some internet or something? Wi-Fi issue. Oh, no. (laughs) He's working on it. All right. Well. Hopefully he'll be back with us soon. Um, anyway, uh, let's see. This was, uh, I guess, a um, final report on this accident of the DC-3. Uh, they were um, touching down on a dirt runway of uh, San Felipe during the rollout. After about 300 meters of roll, the left main gear collapsed, causing the aircraft to veer off the runway and come to a stop in the left main wing, right main gear, and tailwheel, both propeller both propellers were separated from the aircraft. There were no injuries and the aircraft sustained substantial damage. There is one of the photos of the airplane after it uh, swerved off the runway and then back on. And that's one of the propellers uh, that came off. Uh, Here's the left wing. So the left main gear collapsed and that uh, caused the left wing tip and left propeller to come off at that point. Um, yeah, not in good shape here. Um, but these DC threes are, are awfully, uh, beefy airframes. I'll bet Mm. that this thing's probably, probably still flying somewhere. They probably fixed it. I don't know. Anyway, um, seven, 2018. Yeah, cap- it happened yeah, a couple of years ago. Like it was in lovely Nick, didn't it? I mean, it's, it's clean and shiny and. Mm -hmm. Looking very pretty. It would be very sad yeah. to think it was uh, going to die. Now, why did I think that this was something worth talking about? Mm. I don't know. Oh, it's just because they got a damn great big lump of metal in a, in a tire. Oh, they? that's it. Thank you, Nick. Uh, tell yeah. us about, what happened here. How did the uh, left main well, collapse? <laughs> I think uh, they hit a bit of rebar, a great big metal pole that uh, jagged into the tire, burst the tire and uh, dragged the gear uh, or created such a drag on the gear that the gear mm. collapsed. A great big iron rod 
15 centimeters uh, mm. in length was found embedded in the tire when they came to it. And another rod uh, of a similar length was found at the left runway edge, um, only 21 meters from the center line. So these, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty much a dirt strip, uh, you know, uh, so it's not exactly like it's a very formal looking runway, but uh uh, it, I don't think they'd done any decent runway inspections, or if they mm-hmm. had, they would have found these. I think they found another one of those uh, rods also on the runway uh, after this accident. Uh, oh, right. Okay. One that they actually didn't run over. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the, the uh, tire marks okay. were both like 39 centimeters wide. However, after the left main hit that rod and deflated it, it uh, increased from 39 to 57 centimeters so it definitely went flat yeah wow which is such a shame because the guy was probably quite used to popping in and out of there mm-hmm. places similar and probably done a fine job of his landing no need to have his airplane wrecked by a lump of metal left on the runway mm. not good yeah, i wonder what that notum looks like <laughs> <laughs> i don't know Notum, uh, runway inspection for FOD does not occur at this airport. Yes, be careful. Watch out for very... Operate at your own risk. Big rods. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. Now, we talked about this one a couple of times, actually. Air Djibouti, 737-500. And it uh, touched down uh, short of the runway. And uh, I remember seeing some of those photos of the uh, right main gear um, tire marks on the very uh, sharp kind of edge or transition uh, between the uh, runway safety area and the beginning of the runway. And uh, the uh, gear collapsed and it went sliding sideways. And the reason why we put this in here is there's an update to uh, or a preliminary report on this. And I'm kind of thinking when I'm reading this that uh, I'm, I'm kind of reading the or uh, waving the BS flag myself because they're saying now that it w- had something to do with wind shear. Although hmm. when you look at the at the weather reports, um, yeah, let's see, weather information at 625Z indicated few low clouds at 2,000 feet. Visibility was more than 10 kilometers and wind direction was... 060 northeast at speed approximately 17 knots and nothing mentioning um, gusty winds or anything else here and uh, but they're kind of at least the airline is um, blaming this on a wind shear event which caused the AIB said that they should upgrade the weather forecast for timely updates on weather factors to mitigate weather-related occurrences, suggesting that this was a weather-related current occurrence and okay. not just a short landing. So I, I'm with you, Jeff. It looks like they're trying to suggest that uh, there was a problem with the weather mm-hmm. when we're going, yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe I just... suggest there was a problem with the weather report or the weather reporting or... Uh, that seems uh, I, I wonder. I wonder if it's the same kind of problem they had with the only um, fire truck that the was fire truck to- <laughs> <laughs> had been out of service for a, a couple a, of months. <laughs> not having a tire. Or yeah, it <laughs> uh, doesn't look like they're right on top of things here at this particular airport in um, where is this in? Uh, They'll get it fixed. Eventually. Somalia, maybe. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just, when I read this, I'm thinking, eh, wind shear, really? Uh, okay. I guess maybe, or maybe they just kind of ducked under a little bit too much and oh, misjudged. Yes. I, I found the line you're referring to here. The, the factor contributing to the accident of weather condition, wind shear was the major cause of the accident. Huh. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. I mean, who am sure I? Jam. You know, I wasn't there. All right. Moving on. Um, nothing to see here. No, yeah, nothing to see here. I'm going to, um, let's see. Do you want to, yeah, I guess we can cover this next one. Uh, final report. Uh, Asiana Airbus A320-200 registration. Hotel Lima 7738 performing flight 8708 from Guangzhou to Seoul had prepared the landing uh, runway before departure based on the ATIS information indicating runway 32 right was used for landing. The crew intended to perform an automatic landing. The crew departed, climbed the aircraft cruise flight level 190, was on approach to Gimpo Airport uh, in uh, Seoul, and ATC cleared the flight for an ILS approach to and landing on runway 32 left. Despite that clearance, the aircraft touched down on runway 32 right when another airliner was cleared to cross runway 32 right at taxiway Echo about 2,500 meters down the runway and went past the hold short line. The controller, realizing that the A320 had landed on the wrong runway, instructed the crossing airliner to speed up crossing the runway. At that point, the A320 was 1,810 meters from, from the crossing airliner. When the crossing airliner had ex- exited the runway, the A320 had slowed down to 27 knots over the ground, began to vacate the runway at taxiway Delta 3. Um, so uh, the Air uh, Investigation Board concluded that the probable causes were the crew had entered the landing runway information at the time of departure, which is not entirely unusual. Um, in fact, that's kind of common. Uh, a lot of the times we'll actually actually put the landing runway information in before we even leave our, our origin um, based on uh, the weather at the time and, and automatic terminal information, service information, et cetera. It's just that we have to be careful that uh, we make sure that that's still valid information when we're getting close to the time of landing. Um, it says here the crew remained unaware of the changed runway and continued landing on the prepared but wrong runway. And they neglected to check the ATIS information and failure to comply with flight procedures by the crew, insufficient monitoring of the flight track by tower to detect approaches to wrong runways. Um, so, yeah, basically this is just one of those things where they were cleared to land on 3-2 uh, left. Uh, however, they had already prepared to land on 3-2 right. And, uh, yeah, not sure why they didn't send them around. where the captain did something very naughty, which I think is probably quite common, Mm -hmm. in that he listened to the ATIS just to get the identifier, (laughs) Juliet. (laughs) That never happens. Come on. (laughs) And uh, never actually listened to the information. So he didn't pick up the fact that the runway has changed. Yeah. Yeah. If, If you're one of those people out there who does that, stop it. Eventually, it'll, it'll catch up to you. <laughs> yeah, it will. It will. Yeah. Well, on, the, on these I mean, uh, on these newer airplanes, we um, you can see it's it's, it's very it's it's very seldom that we'll actually just sit there 
and, and listen to ADIS, particularly in, in those airplanes that are uh, equipped uh, with ACARS. Um, you'll, uh, you'll send for your ADIS, and there is an option on there where um, uh, you, can, uh, you can request what's called an auto-update. So anytime a new uh, ACARS um, uh, comes out, new, a new message comes out, uh, 53 minutes uh, into the hour, uh, you'll get a prompt letting you know that indeed a new acres has come out, and then so what the what you do is is you look at it, and then you print it, and then obviously you know read through it. I can understand how you know back in the day it was uh, it was uh, uh, a, a bit more uh, a little a little a little more a little trickier perhaps to kind of split your cockpit where one guy is now flying and listening to the radios and. And the other guy has to kind of tune uh, the ATIS to the right VH, copy it all down, and then you know come back and and, and relay that information. But uh, but I mean again, there's 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 no excuse as as Nick says. I mean it's uh, you have to make sure that you're operating uh, into a particular airport with the latest and greatest information. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, I mean so. this. This still happens today, uh, Rick. There are still places that I fly that uh, oh. aren't up to date with uh, oh, digital yeah. oh, ATIS information, and you have to kind of yeah. split your attention and, and listen and, and kind of old school it. Yeah, you kind of and sometimes you know it's it's easy to kind of go. Okay, I just need to get the information, the letter identifier, you know, and and you kind of make assumptions, and that can be a dangerous thing. Oh, um, yeah. Absolutely. So, and th- that's why it's also important not only to get the information from ATIS, but also when you're communicating with the uh, re- approach control and the control tower. I mean, how many times during their exchange of conversation did they mention three to you know clear to land on three to left, three to left? But your mind doesn't hear three to left because you're all ready to go for three to right. You know, you're just. Confirmation bias, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that I was reading somewhere that said that uh, the the tower controller was asked, you know, why did they why he didn't send that air flight around, and I, that he was in his judgment it would have been more dangerous to send the airplane around than to just continue to allow him to land and go ahead and try to expedite the crossing traffic on the runway. Not sure that that was a great idea, but. Mm. I guess that's a judgment. No, I mean, if the guy was well established in his landing role, perhaps yeah. because the time it would have taken. Uh, sure. Mind you, the captain's quite capable of making that decision. No, I can't go around because I've got the reverses in or whatever. Right. But, uh, right. Yeah, I, I agree, Jeff. If he, if the even if the guy uh, had just uh, touched down, he he can just turn that into a bulk landing. We, we were all aware how to do that. We practiced those procedures. It wouldn't have been. Uh, beyond the wit of man to do that. But the one point I was going to make is um, about the ATIS. Of course, there are places where the ATIS is updated so frequently yeah. that, uh, you know, you just get maxed out. We On the aircraft I flew, we got, generally to all our destinations, we got the automatic ATIS printed out. And um, we would set it to print on every renewal, uh, you know, and that would stay valid for an hour. And on the approach and classically into Heathrow, and I hope Adam Spink's listening to this, uh, you could go around the hold for a while and then make an approach. And in that time, you'd have gone through the entire alphabet mm. like <laughs> <laughs> of, of new atuses, and it just became so common. And you, you just go, I just can't keep up with all this stuff. You'd have like four feet of 
continuous paper trail coming out, all new atises. It used to really get my goat. And what's really frustrating about that, and I agree with you, (laughs) is that uh, usually uh, the the change uh, between the different ATIS ATIS broadcasts is either – non-existent or so insignificant that it's like why Mm -hmm. but i think that they have a requirement that they have to do it every so often i wish they'd change the rule to say you know don't you know if if nothing really has changed significantly then then don't change it you know and wait until something is you know significant yeah Yeah. but i don't think they're allowed to do that just have the atis come up and say new atis no changes right so you go mind that wouldn't help if you just come just arrived because you're mm-hmm. going, well, I've got to find the old days. <laughs> True. Yeah. But there could be a better way is what I'm saying. <laughs> right. I agree. I agree. You know, things end up being done for a reason because of things that have happened in the past, but sometimes that doesn't always lead to the best um, process. Yeah. Very true. Well said, Steph. Okay. Um, now here is an interesting one, I believe. Um, and I have uh, some audio to go with this. This happened um, last week. Uh, a private uh, business jet, uh, Cessna Citation 5 or 560, and it took off from Troutdale uh, in uh, the Portland, Oregon area, was intending to uh, travel to Boise, Idaho, and uh, it was in the midst of climbing to cruise level when – Uh, the aircraft suddenly began to descend very rapidly. Um, Some live ATC um, information here. Uh, Let's take a listen. Seattle Center, uh, November 3, Romeo Bravo, with you, uh, rest November 3, Romeo Bravo, low altitude, take altitude immediately. The MI below you is a 13,000. Climb and maintain by level 230. Air three, Romeo Bravo. And are you having any, uh, any problems with uh, your radio? No, I think it's cleared up now. Radio flip loud and clear. Air three, Romeo Bravo. Roger. Clear direct Boise Airport, and just uh, for my verification, climb and maintain level two three zero. Direct Boise up to two three zero. Sorry, Romeo Bravo. Now, at some point here, United 2240 Seattle Center, climb and maintain flight level 230. He continues to climb above flight level 230. November 7432 Lima, change to my frequency 128.15. Some other. Seattle Center, 7432 Lima, 1251. 128.15. November 32 Lima, thank you. The Redman Altimeter, 3028.2832 Lima. United 2240, contact Seattle Center 135.45. 
Reisner, 2214, thank you for the help. Clear direct, Boise. Direct, Boise, Reisner, 2214, thank you. November 3, Romeo Bravo, Seattle Center, if you hear this, ident. Reisner, 2214, contact Seattle Center, 135.45. 135.45, Reisner, 2214. November 3, Romeo Bravo, Seattle Center, how do you hear? November 7432, Lima, can I put uh, you on a heading to see if uh, you can find an aircraft that uh, looked like he went down? 32, Lima, uh, anything? Yep. November 32, Lima, I'm going to uh, have you turn right, heading of uh, 0 9 or 0, maintain VFR. 0 9 or 0 for 32, Lima, VFR. November 32, Lima, and uh, it looks like he went down uh, at, uh, it'll be your 12 o'clock and about 20 miles, and if you could just keep an eye out. 12 o'clock and 20, uh, we're looking to Lima. Number 7432 Lima, and I guess they uh, found uh, where, he, um, where he is. Uh, you can resume on navigation. Thank you for your help, though. Okay, 32 Lima, we're going to uh, go to 362 direct uh, help, bro. Number 332 Lima, thank you for the help. Okay, so it definitely uh, did go down crashed in uh, the uh, terrain um, in that area near Pine Grove, Oregon, uh, in the Mutton Mountains, I think they call it, Mutton Mountains area southeast of Pine Grove, Oregon. Uh, they believe that it was the pilot owner-operator flying the airplane and a passenger uh, on board. They're still trying to come up with all the details regarding that, but uh it, it can hold, I think, up to 11 passengers, but uh, there were only, as far as they know, two on board. Now, right off the bat, uh, the initial communication that we hear on that recording uh, sounds kind of, I don't know, a little shaky to me. Like the, the person, I don't know, you know, maybe that's the way this person sounds on the radio all the time, but it kind of, he sounded sort of unsure of himself. I don't know if he was experiencing some kind of a physiological episode at that point or not. Um, apparently had uh, some issues on the initial departure from Troutdale. Um, she had to warn him of, uh, you know, low altitude. Um, and, you know, you'll know that if you're flying in that area of the country uh, in Oregon, um, very high terrain, uh, 13,000 was the uh, minimum um, altitude, uh, that she warned him about. Uh, but apparently he, he gets on track and, and gets the airplane pointed in the right direction and climbing. And then, as I said before, um, the, uh, he continued climbing to flight level two, three, zero, and then continued to climb above that altitude. And I believe it got all the way up almost to 31,000 feet before the, uh, radar track on flight radar 24 showed that, uh, the airplane started to descend very rapidly in a spiral descent. And we have a photo evidence of the uh, impact site on Mutton Mountain. And it uh, looks like it pretty much just went right in vertically. And that's it. So uh, they're still trying to figure out what was going on here. And that's really all the information we have so far. Yeah. Um, I mean, the fact that he... Uh, that he um Flew past his two three zero assigned altitude. Uh, perhaps tells me that he was uh, perhaps hand flying. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, otherwise, I mean, I, I don't, I don't particularly know. Or flew flew point. past it and then they couldn't contact him and perhaps incapacitated in some form mm-hmm. or another. Mm-hmm. 
Now, some people yeah. said, well, po- po- you know, possibly hypoxia, but I don't believe, you know, he was high enough for long enough for that to no. occur. No, 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 not 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 in the not in the not in the not first the, audio uh, part. Yeah, yeah, not in the high teens, not at all. So, so uh, yeah, it, it certainly sounded like he was a slow talker, and he didn't come across very clear on the radio, but what he was saying sounded quite lucid to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have, I, I'm just thinking of AG on posing bases. He just kind of talks that way all the time. So um, Ooh, I'm just uh, thinking, yeah, it, <laughs> it, might, it might have been. I'm just going to make sure that they've got medical. your direct email. AG, <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, yeah, wow. I, I'm offended. I I would be offended. (laughs) Yeah, I'm only joking. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's a bit hard. Unless you know what he sounded like normally, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to make a judgment on that. That is true. uh, Obviously, something went very weird on the flight deck because, uh, you know, uh, there's very few other explanations. I agree. Um, I wish we knew more here. Uh, Perhaps he suffered a stroke or heart attack or something. Um, I would it think that unheard of what it happened before. Um, you, you would think that the, the passenger, uh, if was indeed a, um, a pilot that, uh, they would have been able to take over, but apparently, um, apparently not. Uh, there's a it's, picture here that I want to show you. Um, the, um, airport Troutdale, uh, again, in the Portland, Oregon area, is on the upper left-hand corner of this photo, and uh, that's Mount um, Mount Hood in uh, Oregon, a beautiful uh, mountain peak that uh, looks like the flight tracked just to the south of, um, heading toward the uh, east-southeast, and then it gets to a certain point beyond that, and then it just shows a bunch of spiral uh, tracks all the way down until it hits the uh, hits the earth. There's probably no in-flight recorder uh, on one of these, is there? Do we know? Certainly no voice recorder, I wouldn't have thought. I'm not sure if it does have one or not. Um, if it does, uh, then that might be the only way we'll really know what happened here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we'll kind of keep our... I did check on that this morning before we started recording and uh, did not see any updates on it at, at this yeah. point. And I thought it'd be pretty hard to get anything conclusive out of an autopsy. Yeah, mm. probably not. Okay. Um, let's move on to the last item in our news notebook. Um, <laughs> I, I, I laugh because the person that was involved in this accident um, is still alive. As far as we know, um, it was a, it was a hard touchdown. <laughs> um, let's see a pilot. Um, crashed his small plane in the Oyster Bay town landfill Sunday survived was listed in stable condition at a local hospital Monday, Nassau County police said, um, the, uh, flight was, uh, involved a, um, Cessna 421 B model, I believe with the wingtip tanks and, uh, took off from the Farmingdale airport in long Island. And, taken off on runway 32 and not long after it it had uh taken off uh they uh the person didn't 
declare an emergency, uh, didn't declare an, a mayday, uh, but said that he was having engine trouble, lost an engine, and then uh, subsequently um, mentions that uh, he has lost both engines. And, uh, you know, I thought I'd had the, uh, the audio for this, but apparently I forgot to do that. Um, and uh, the controller does a really good job of uh, giving him information about where he can go and trying to get him back to the airport. But his altitude and distance from the airport at, the, at that point was just too far for the uh, glide on that mm. airplane, which I would imagine is not a... Uh, Oops, ah, they're calling out. They're calling Rick out. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. This is not a good, not a good thing. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, apparently the, uh, airplane didn't have the, uh, glide capability to get back to the air airport. And, uh, so the, uh, pilot ended up finding an area, uh, I think he was going to try to land in a field and didn't quite make it to the field. Although the field that I think he was looking at was actually kind of a, uh, landfill that had been, uh, filled in and, uh, may not have been the best place to put it down anyway, but the airplane, and then we have some um, uh, crash um, footage from the uh, a security cam that shows the airplane um, miraculously in its last couple of seconds before it hits this uh, big pile of debris slash dirt. And it looks like it's in a full stall um, and, and just about to start into a spin when it finally hits the uh, hits the ground and uh, I I think that is just a, a miracle that this guy survived this this accident. Did you guys uh, get to see the uh, security cam video? I have Absolutely. not watched this. Yeah, yeah no. it was uh, it was ugly but uh, quite uh, you know quite recognizable as uh, the aircraft stalling with wing drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not good, but I mean to a certain extent, at least he pancaked it in. So, you know, other than possibly having some back problems, I'm very glad that he's uh, okay. I think somebody asked him if he uh, wanted to uh, take an air flight, um, like a helicopter life flight to the hospital. And he said he did not, not want to get back in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's understandable. <laughs> Here's you know his what? quote. I'm just going to be on the ground for a little while longer. Yeah. Like Absolutely not. You mentioned the I con- don't want to go back up in the, the air. <laughs> yeah, quite right. You mentioned the controller there, mm-hmm. Jeff, and uh, I was impressed with his local knowledge. Now, you might think that was normal, but I think there are a lot of controllers that wouldn't have the detail that this guy had. And right. He was directing him towards a, a freeway to put it down on a local areas that might be useful mm-hmm. if he couldn't make the airfield. So I was actually pretty impressed. I was too. Having said that, if I'd been on that freeway, I would have been like, don't, don't send him here. Send him somewhere else. <laughs> Keep him off send my him road. patch of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, uh, this from Catherine's report, I just happened to be looking uh, for as much information as I could about this particular incident. Um, and then I, I noticed... <laughs> At the bottom of this article, this uh, pilot, Mark Kappas, um, there's a picture of him, and um, it's not a flattering picture of him. Uh, and, and the narrative here says, A Belmore man was arrested and charged with reckless endangerment over the weekend for allegedly flying his plane below the federal minimum safe altitude near a Belmore Merrick Central District High School, police said. Um, 
He was uh, 49 years old at the time, so this was about eight years ago, I guess. I think right now he's 57. Flew his 1972 Cessna at altitudes as low as 200 feet above the Kennedy High School in Belmore, while also making sharp banking maneuvers as he came in low. Uh, so they went to his house and arrested him and took, took him into custody a month and a half after the incident uh, because they needed time to work with the Federal Aviation Administration and other agencies to identify the plane and its owner and the airport where it took off. Anyway, so just kind of they threw that in there for a little bit of um, an information point that uh, this this particular gentleman, uh, you know, may have nothing to do with the, the incident that we're talking about in the crash and maybe, you know, maybe that was just a, uh, a bad judgment uh, incident in, earlier in his life when he was a younger man. And maybe he uh, learned his lesson from that. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened here with the, there, there is some speculation here that it's possible that the airplane may have been fueled with jet fuel and not av gas uh, yeah, like this is both engines cause in, these, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Like fuel contamination, wrong fuel. Yeah. You're always got to look at the fuel system. I initially thought to myself, oh, this sounds to me like clearly like fuel starvation. Yeah. Um, but I think that at some point in the report, it talks about the fact that the local rescuers, uh, fire department people were using foam because of fuel leak. So sounds like there may have been at least some residual fuel coming out of the airplane uh, wreckage. So that's why some people were kind of wondering whether or not this airplane had been misfueled. So I don't know. Well, we've, we've covered cases of that exact thing in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, The wrong Mm -hmm. fuel going in, it's still happening despite all the signs and the different nozzle sizes and everything. People have still managed to do it. Apparently, there are versions of this, uh, the, the Golden Eagle, that are turboprop powered. Is that right, um, Steph? Uh, the, I don't like know, the 425 or something like that. I think that there are mm, certain models that. Yeah. So I guess uh, somebody had in the comments uh, on one of these articles had said that, that this airplane is not, it's not uncommon for it to get, con- you know, people get confused mm-hmm. with what kind of fuel is supposed to. Although, you know, I, I fueled airplanes. I used to that used to be one of my jobs when I was a teenager, uh, and I, for the most part, it's usually pretty clear when you're going up to a fuel tank and you open up the uh, the cap. Uh, there's like markings all over the place, and there are even restrictor plates for nozzles, so you don't stick the yeah. wrong kind of nozzle in. So, you know, a jet fuel nozzle, from what I remember, and it's been quite quite some time since I've seen one, an over-the-fuel kind of a jet fuel nozzle, they're a much larger diameter uh, than a um, an Avgas um, nozzle. And so you have to really, <laughs> you have to do some fancy work to get the nozzle of a jet fuel um, kind of a thing to to get the to get the fuel into the fuel tank of a airplane that's not supposed to have jet fuel. If that makes any sense, but I don't know. Uh, this one was a turboprop, I believe. Nope, it no, was four twenty ones are not. No, normally are aspirated. Uh, yeah, yeah. And actually, and uh, back in A and P school, okay. I used to we used to have a, a four twenty one. I used to um, um, tinker with, but yeah. So these are these are just uh, All right. normal. I, black I'm just engines. reading that officials said the Cessna C four two one, a twin engine turboprop. That's wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, see. no. Okay. Yeah. Well, 
But yeah, I think four twenty five. That's wrong then. Four forty one. <laughs> yeah. There are there are smaller uh, twin turbo prop Cessnas. I just don't know which number designations they have. Yeah, I think from reading in some of these comments, the four twenty five, I think, is a four twenty five. Uh, I think. Yeah, is a turbo prop. Maybe a four forty one. Yeah, but the. Uh, the 421, uh, in this case, the one that was involved in the accident is clearly not a turboprop uh, aircraft. Funny, because that, that's in the, the clipping from the Federal Aviation Administration Flight Standards District Office, Farmingdale. Hmm. <laughs> well. Continental O520 engines. Where does it say? Yeah, uh, those are canals. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I remember that. Well, oh, whatever. Yeah, if they got the wrong fuel in. It's the other fuel. Possibly you need. that might be, or uh, or it could be just fuel starvation. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. And you know what? It's likely we're never going to find out, <laughs> but hopefully we will, and so we can learn from it. Anywho, uh, check it out. We'll have this in the show notes. Uh, there's a, um, as I said, some really good uh, footage of the uh, crash on the um, on the closed circuit. TV monitor. Um, should I try to play that um, and share the screen right now? If you can, if it's easy okay. enough. I'll try it. Easy? Sure. It's easy. And I'm saying that sarcastically. Um, well, that is a not a video. Sorry. Hang on. I'll take a little, little break here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You just kind of entertain yourselves while I see if I can find the video. Why is none of this working? Huh. Just kind of talk amongst yourself. Oh. Yabba, yabba, yabba. <laughs> there you go. That's good. So was that a call out then, Rick? Yeah, did you get called out, Rick? What? The, no, 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 no. Didn't get called out. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's see here. I think I found the video and not a and not a photo. And let's see if I can share this. And yeah. Okay. Sure. All right. So it's the one on top here. And boom. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. No, no kidding. Like, there's a slower yeah. version, isn't there? If you keep um, Let's see. Oh. Well, I, I, uh, this is the best I can do at short notice. So okay. here, I'm going to play it again. And I'll try to stop it when I first see it come into view here into frame right now. So that's right before it impacts that pile of dirt or whatever it is. And then boom. So... It was, he was lucky to get away with that. Yeah, he was oh lucky to get away gosh. from that. <laughs> now, was was there a, was there a post crash fire that we know about? No, no, no smoke, no fire. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Very similar to the sound that Steph made earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hmm? questioning. Yeah. <laughs> Passive aggressive sure little noises she makes. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to stay on brand here. <laughs> oh, we love you. Oh, All right. 
that is it in the news. Thank goodness. Not a moment too soon. <laughs> so that means it's time now for us to uh, talk about what we have been doing between episodes. Let's see. It was a week and a half ago, I believe. A week ago, Wednesday. Last time we were together. And I don't know. Not a lot has happened with me, anyway. Um, I Oh! Actually, you don't mind if I, if I start with myself, do you? Go right, Go right ahead. Okay. Ah, so free, sir. last episode, I was not feeling 100%, and I thought that I might have COVID. And I wasn't sure. I'd, I'd taken the test and sent it in for the, uh, uh, the in-home testing diagnostic uh, company Quest out in California to um, give me the results of the test. And it was not long after we recorded the show that I received an email, went to the site and logged in and found that um, they had detected COVID and uh, it was a little confusing to me, the test results. Um, but uh, Dr. Steph was able to help me, you know, read the results there. And she said, yep, they detected uh, COVID in your nostrils. So um, that kind of confirmed things. Now I should mention that um, I had very, very mild symptoms of COVID. So I don't know what that means for me in the future, but um, apparently um, I, I was lucky uh, that I didn't have more moderate or severe symptoms of it. And uh, I kind of felt um, kind of not very good for quite some time after that. Uh, I, my initial uh, symptoms happened on the 1st of January when I was on a the first day of a trip that I flew. Uh, by the way, they did contact my first officer and uh, took him off of his next trip just as a precaution. He was tested and um, it, he was not uh, positive. It was a negative test for him. And um, so they kind of just continued to monitor me and my symptoms. And uh, I think it was probably on day 10, day 10, day 11, uh, my fever uh, kind of went left and uh, my temperature returned to normal. I never really had a high temperature. It was just pretty much a low grade temp the, uh, the entire time. So um, as I said, I'm, I consider myself lucky that uh, I didn't have a nastier uh, bout of the, of the COVID. Uh, interestingly, I, I was working with a representative of our chief pilot office and uh, he was checking in with me every couple of days to see how I, I was doing. And I was also um, in contact with the ACME nurse line, um, specifically set up for dealing with uh, employees that have COVID or sus suspect that they do. Was she a Red Cross nurse? Um, not sure. Um, I don't think I so. I prefer the, the nice blonde ones myself. Well, I didn't get to see her, actually. It was just over the phone. But she had a very nice voice. Okay. Um, okay. actually a couple of different, uh, ladies that I, that I talked to and, um, they, uh, basically said uh, when I told them that I, my, my symptoms were kind of tapering off and, and I no longer had a fever, uh, they said, okay, well then you're good to go. And so the no fly status came off of my schedule and, um, and I said, so I, I can, I can fly now. And they said, yeah. I said, do I need to, do I need to go take a test and see if see if I still have it detected. And they said, um, it's very likely that if you take a test in the next 90 days, uh, that it will show that you have COVID. <laughs> so I, Oh, 
Yeah, I guess the testing regimen doesn't have the ability to differentiate between a live virus and a dead virus existent in it our does bodies. Not. The PCR testing just looks for the genetic material. So if it's still there, even though it's not live virus, it will detect it. Okay. So basically, they said you're wasting your time <laughs> taking taking a test now for the next three months and uh, that they assume that I'm no longer contagious and no longer have it, the live virus anyway, inside. And uh, that, and I said, well, what if I, um, wh- what if I get exposed? Like I'm flying with somebody who has it, you know, in the in the future. And they said, basically, you're good to go. You don't even have to quarantine uh, if you are exposed to somebody that actively has the has the virus. I went, oh, okay. <laughs> so I am uh, off no fly status. So I'm on fly status. But you know what? It just so happens that. One of my vacation periods just happened to be next week. So um, the first two trips, well, actually not the first two trips. Yeah, my, my first two scheduled trips since I was uh, diagnosed with this uh, were dropped uh, due to uh, being, you know, precautious uh, regarding, you know, not spreading it to somebody else. And now I'm on vacation or I will start vacation on Sunday. And then I'm scheduled for a trip on the 26th, the last week of the month. So. I'm just going to stay out of the air and, um, you know, hopefully I'm good to go. So that's it. I've been just sitting around. Well, we're so pleased you uh, fought it off, uh, Jeff. Very good. Yeah. Because not everyone we know has been quite so fortunate. No. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of the uh, voiceover folks that uh, Nick uses uh, on several occasions for his plane tales Greg Willits, um, a friend of mine and doesn't live too far from me here in the Atlanta area, um, has been diagnosed with it and looks like he has, has more moderate symptoms. He's on oxygen. Yeah, I was very sorry to hear that because mm-hmm. he's been a great help to me uh, in the past with my plane tales. Because, you know, and you'll find out from the beginning of this play, plane tale, just how bad my ability to. <laughs> come out with accents is <laughs> oh so we're already feeling so, the effects of greg uh, being out of service for voiceover work is that what you're saying <laughs> well I, it wasn't an american accent i needed but uh, I, i'm just i i my accents just uh are, are, oh, you perhaps you'll find it amusing. now's a good time to practice I suppose. There you go. exactly yeah. now really anyway. opportunity now you guys you know that i'm like an expert at accents i mean i'm i'm one of the best out there I'm just kidding. Of course, I can, I cannot uh, do can an I accent. Have an, an Indian gentleman accent. I can do an Indian, but that would be offensive. So I'm not going to do that. Thank you very much. We're, we offend too much as it anyway, is. So I don't. Want I to rely do that. on Greg a lot. So I was very unhappy uh, that to hear he was unwell. He's he's given his time so freely, and he's such a gent. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate his uh, assistance, and hope he gets better soon. Yeah, if you're listening, Greg, I, I don't think he is, but if if you are, we hope that you get better soon. And um, I know that you're being very well taken care of by your lovely wife, Jennifer, and your family. Um, and you'll notice if you look at the, if you're watching the video, that here in um, Roswell, Georgia, it's a pretty good snowfall coming down uh, behind me. You can see out the window and uh, the fire in the fireplace. Actually, that's all just fake. That's not really happening here. It's no, really? not no. snowing at all. Tell us that. <laughs> but uh, I just you love your basement. It's my basement. Yes. Look at the view I have out of my basement there. Isn't that nice? I love it. It's very warm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. 
All right, that's it. That's it for me. I, I'm COVID free and knock on wood, and uh, hopefully I'll be out there flying folks around again in the future. So that's it. Uh, who wants to go next? Mm, I'll go since I can tie into the whole um, COVID thing okay. a little bit. So it's at least um, a half or a third of the reason why we moved the show this week, um, partially anyway. Um, so I have not had COVID, fortunately, we'll say that to start off with, but I did, um, have been fortunate enough, lucky enough to, um, be one of the first to receive the vaccine. So I had my second dose of vaccine this week and like many others have noticed or experienced, and there's definitely a spectrum of intensity in terms of response to the vaccine. Um, but it is common to get side effects afterwards, um, that basically feel like flu-like illness. So some people do have low-grade fevers, chills, sweats, muscle aches. Uh, it's definitely soreness at the site of the injection. Headache has been very common for a lot of folks. And I had all of those things for about 30 hours and really did not feel very good. Um, so uh, just to tie that into aviation for uh, a moment as well, um, that's why the FAA has guidance that if you receive one of these vaccines, you are not to fly for 48 hours afterwards. And I will tell you, I would have had no business being um, <laughs> good advice. of an aircraft <laughs> for <laughs> those 30 hours that I did not feel very well. Um, so the good news is, you know, it, it is not anything that lasts for the long term. The longest I've heard of anyone having symptoms afterwards was uh, uh, one of my um, colleagues said she had symptoms for 56 hours, but for most people, it's 24 to 48 at the most. And some people have almost no side effects at all. They don't even notice that any, you know, normal day for them. Other people have very mild things. And for some, it's a little bit more um, severe. I did manage to make it through work that day. So it wasn't that bad, but it was not pleasant either. So, um, yeah, so that was... Um, kind of interesting, but definitely after working, I was not really feeling up to talking or doing much else at that point. I kind of just wanted to rest. So thank you all for um, postponing the show till today. And other than that, um, work has actually been very busy, lots of um, things going on and developments. And unfortunately, I can't speak to any specifics of those things at the moment, but um, it's all good and positive stuff. So Sweet. no flying recently, but hopefully change that soon as well. I'm a little concerned about the um, folks that are were watching behind Nick's uh, window. He, uh, Nick is uh, recording this um, live from some airport somewhere, um, and uh, there there happens to be an RJ that keeps going around in circles, uh, and they're having quite a time figuring out where to go. <laughs> I think he's under the control of JFK ground, so yeah, just, just keep for it. Just keep moving. <laughs> yeah. Turn around. Yeah. Turn around. Yeah. We don't have anywhere for you to stop. So he, just he obviously upset the ground controller. He's there he goes again. Well, circles, yeah. For those who are used to uh, and have experience with uh, ground operations at um, Chicago's O'Hare, uh, basically this is what they want you to do. They just want you to keep moving. Just keep <laughs> moving until I tell you what to do. So this person is actually taking heed and uh, just continuing to Fly and no drive in circles. Good job. He hasn't hit the thing yet. So. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> anyway, um, so Nick, since we're talking about the uh, the airport that you're showing us behind you, uh, why don't you tell us what has uh, been happening with you since the last episode? Well, 
uh, we, we're on a, uh, pretty much under a lockdown. Uh, it's not officially called a lockdown here in the UK, but you might just as well be, uh, because uh, the the variant of COVID nineteen that is ripping through the country right now uh, is a mutation of the original and considerably more infectious. So uh, our hospitals are filling up uh, very fast, and uh, they're just doing. The government is doing its utmost to try and keep a lid on this so that we don't run out of hospital beds. So uh, to anyone in the UK who happens to be listening, please uh, adhere to the government advice and try and protect our National Health Service. At the moment, they need a bit of a break. They're working very hard. Um, personally, uh, you know, nothing much has changed. I was uh, pretty much not going anywhere before, and I'm still not going anywhere. Uh, play with my new camera, loving that, because we're allowed out for a dog walk, so that's great, get a bit of exercise. Um and the only uh, thing that's slightly changed uh, and to look forward to is I was contacted by um, a lovely bloke called Sebastian uh, and uh, his, um, I guess, his co-host or producer perhaps called Sarah. They uh, run a German podcast called the uh, Air Crash Podcast. Uh, and uh, he listens to us, one of our listeners, so great. Uh, he's been doing this podcast for I guess just about a month uh, and started early December and already he's uh, getting about 200 streams per episode and about 900 people have subscribed but it's very early days for him uh, so if you're one of our German listeners um, if or you speak fluent German like of course I do uh, then uh, you might want to listen to this mm. uh, podcast <laughs> <laughs> My Luftkissen Fahrzeug ist füllen mit allen. I told you so. Um, Did you just say something about sharing your farts with us? <laughs> I know, That's kind of what it sounded like to me. Is full of eels. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he, he obviously uh, uh, discusses uh, air crashes. He has uh, a weekly um, podcast, which is pre-recorded, and then he does a news section, which is live. And he said uh, in this news section, they'll be uh, discussing that week's um, podcast, which is going to be about the Tenerife uh, disaster. Uh, you remember the two 747s that collide in Tenerife back in the mid-70s? Uh, probably, I still think it's the world's worst uh, accident. Yeah, to this uh, day. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, he's going to be talking about that. And uh, despite the fact that I don't speak German, he's invited me to be on the show. So uh, I only hope I can understand the questions. So I'm, I'm hoping he speaks English as well as German, because sadly I'm uh, monolinguistic, uh, which is not which is classic for us English speakers, isn't it? <laughs> we can't be bothered to learn anyone else's language, at least most of the people I know in that, in that no. boat. But uh, a shout-out for uh, Sebastian and the uh, German Air Crash podcast. Um, so, you know, uh, if you can uh, have a look for that and uh, find it, you'll, uh, you'll get him. Uh, and uh, the live thing, which is called ACPC News. ACPC News. Um, so uh, that'll be on the 26th of January on that. So good luck with your show, Sebastian. Uh, very glad that uh, you know, you're know you a listener of ours. And uh, we always uh, try and encourage uh, new podcasters because, uh, oh, there he is. Um, new podcasters because, of course, uh, the more people out there that take an interest in aviation, uh, the better we'll all be in the industry. 
Make sure you have a lot yeah, of fun with um, Nick. He really likes to be made fun of. Just <laughs> enjoys that. Well, I know that Joe has a fantastic your... sense of humor. So, uh, <laughs> your love of um, you know Boeing aviation products and whatever. Oh, yes. I know Nick says he yeah. has no no uh, dog in this fight anymore, but um, we know otherwise. <laughs> I was chatting to uh, Marcus of uh, Omega Tau uh, about uh, Sebastian's podcast, and he asked me which of my many crashes will Sebastian be discussing <laughs> with me. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, dear. Uh, thank you very much, Sebastian. Great. Great to have you in the chat room. Brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Look forward to uh, So that'll be my uh, hearing you that'll on be that. a highlight for me uh, in 10 days' time. Sweet. Very good. All right. Uh, Rick, last yeah. but not least, how you been doing? Been doing good since the uh, last podcast. Um, uh, it was um, uh, Kaya's birthday on the 7th, so uh, we kind of you know, did stuff around the house, uh, nothing too much. And then I left for work the following uh, Saturday. And uh, just been sitting here in Cincinnati the whole time. Uh, had a quick uh, out and back the other day, uh, which is why we another reason why we had to uh, postpone the uh, the recording of this fine podcast. But other than that, I've just been uh, just just sitting here in Cincinnati, sitting reserve, uh, which is uh, you know one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> yes, um, weather's been great. It uh, was snowing sideways here yesterday, <laughs> so I had to uh, you know kind of postpone my. Uh, my, uh, I guess going out for a walk and you know, finding something uh, to eat. And, <laughs> but besides that, I've just been sitting here in this hotel, which is a really nice hotel. It's, uh, it's right, right, right downtown. This is a new hotel we're staying in. Hmm. Um, nice gym here. Uh, but, uh, anything really open down that. there? Um, uh, actually, things are, things are starting to open up. Um, uh, well, perhaps, um, uh, yesterday night being, uh, it was, it was Friday night here. So there's a lot of people out and about kind of walking around and uh, restaurants open and everything. It's that kind of come. I don't know if going back to normal, uh, yet, but, uh, things are indeed getting better. Um, so, uh, but then again, uh, you know, Sundays and Mondays here are, uh, kind of bleak. Everything's kind of closed again. Um, so, um, I'll be uh, here until tomorrow. Tomorrow night, I have a flight over to uh, Houston, and I actually stay out there. Um, and then uh, back here to Cincinnati for a couple of hours to fly uh, to wait for the sort, which is when you um, you know you you basically come back to the hub, unload the aircraft, and then they reload it, and then you head back out to another station. So I'm going to be flying to, uh, from here over to Philly. Be spending the day in Philly and then back here to Cincinnati uh, on, uh, I believe, uh, what is it, uh, Tuesday? And then uh, that'll be it. And that'll be my last flight f- as a Cincinnati-based pilot as in, uh, for in uh, February. I'm uh, switching over to Ontario, California, which is going to be great. Ooh. Yeah, Sounds like an easier commute. Looking that. Yeah, easier commute. Not only that, but uh, a lot of uh, it's going to be uh, mostly mostly Amazon flying, which is uh, nice. Uh, it's all uh, Dash three hundred. Not, not not that I have anything against the Dash two hundred, 
But the Dash 200s that we have are are very, very old. Uh, there's no ACARs on that. So going back to that mm-hmm. ADA discussion. Uh, wow. We, uh, you, you, go back to, you go back to basically flying a, a, a 172 with, uh, with uh, jet engines on it. So uh, there's a lot of things that you have to do. <laughs> Oh, manually on this, on this, on these uh, uh, old uh, Dash 200s. For like one of them, for example, is, um, and I always forget to do this, and I actually have to remind myself. Um, when you get to the top of climb, so you get to your, your cruise altitude, uh, you have to uh, wait 15 minutes, and then you have to uh, uh, do uh, an engine health snapshot, which um, uh, you go down to the uh, little button on the, uh, on the panel there, and you hit it, and it says event record. So you hit that. And then the the CMC, the central maintenance, maintenance computer, takes a snapshot of the of what the engines are doing, and then you have to write that down in the uh, on the logbook. So there's a lot more. It's a lot more involved, uh, you know, flying these old Dash 200s. Uh, and also, you don't have access to the to uh, you know digital ATIS, so you kind of have to uh, pregame things on the ground, which is you know, and that's why these EFBs come in so handy. So I basically mm. uh, tether my EFB to my phone. And then see what the weather route is going to be, what the aid is that the destination is going to be. Thankfully, the flights on these old Dash 200s aren't longer than two, two and a half hours. So it's just really not that bad. Um, so, uh, well, I'm going to be, uh, I'm not going to miss <laughs> the Dash 200s. <laughs> How do you get three meals in in two and a half hours? <laughs> Very quickly. <laughs> You, you have uh, one on the taxi it. out, one in the cruise, and one in the descent. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's how I do it. Yeah, so, um, I like that. Yeah, but that's going to be good. The Ontario based is mostly, uh, it's, it's like I said, mostly Amazon flying, a lot of flying out to Hawaii. So that's going to be nice. And uh, we do uh, also go uh, on out to uh, to uh, Puerto Rico. So that's going to be good too. So, uh, <laughs> and, and it's going to be, um, uh, I'm going to be getting away from, uh, the uh, middle of the night type flying, so it's going to be more bankers hours type stuff, which is nice. I mean, I do I do prefer to fly at night. I like flying at night more. Uh, I don't like the sun in my face all the time. But uh, you know, having a, a nice you know normal uh, schedule is going to be a, a welcome change, uh, at least for a little while. So we'll see we'll see how it uh, how that plays out. Well, I can't wait to hear all about it. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Excellent. All right. Anything else before we move on to the coffee fund? I guess not. Here we go. Nope. And cue Jeff Smith. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea. And the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. See, Liz, I do get, <laughs> I do get to sing this weekend, although not at my church. Another weekend off for us singers. Anyway, uh, the Coffee Fund. That's Jeff Smith, um, an awesome musical talent, singing our Java Jive for the APG, and uh, this is where we talk about those fine folks that contribute to our show financially. And since the last episode, using the Coffee Fun Classic method, we have Mazuts Karim again. And thank you, Mazuts. And George Leslie. I believe he's up in somewhere up in Canada. And uh, we do appreciate that. I think we 
Uh, I met George at a meetup um, in Toronto at some point. Yep. Please just give me the thumbs up. So that is correct. Okay. The other way to uh, participate in the coffee fund is via Patreon. And since the last episode, for sure, we have one new executive producer. His name is Bob Marige. Marige. Not sure how to pronounce your last name, Bob. Hopefully I didn't mangle that. But I also have to mention that when I was looking at some stuff uh, earlier today, I noticed that, uh, and he's with us right now in the chat room, Ant uh, is also, uh, Ant Pruitt uh, is a new patron of the show. And I believe I mentioned Michael Rogers last week. Um, and, uh, but just in case I missed anybody, cause the last several weeks, things have been kind of a little jumbled up, a little mixed up, uh, especially for me. Um, so we have Michael Rogers, Bob Marriage, uh, Ant Pruitt, uh, Patrick McKenna. Hopefully I mentioned Patrick on a earlier show. Uh, Jake, uh, Jacobs, um, is also a new executive producer. I do remember mentioning him and Mike Bainter. So I'm just going to cover the last several that uh, signed up to become patrons of the show just to make sure I don't want to miss anybody. So there we go. Uh, Thank you, uh, all of you, for uh, contributing to our show financially. We do appreciate it. And if you want to learn more about how you can become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will be glad you did, too. Captain, incoming message. Oh, this first one is kind of interesting. Uh, Lance sent this in, and we have, uh, Liz, a video for you to play. So uh, it's in the video clips. And uh, he said, hope this link works. Curious to your opinion on the video and comment. At first, I thought it looked odd, but the more I watch, it seems like maybe just ground effect with a slightly high nose up attitude at touchdown and so here's the clip to which he is referring and so he's coming in holding it off holding in a whole boom nice firm touchdown this is an uh, amsterdam it was a triple seven for those of you who are not watching the video uh, we'll have the link to this in the show notes so you can watch it as well it's a kuwaiti triple seven i believe um rick Yep, it's a 300ER. Okay, now, I do have to mention there was audio that went with this video, and um, (laughs) here, let's just play it. This is the reason why I kind of took it out, because it kind of has a guy kind of hysterically commenting in the background as he's watching this airplane coming I thought it was hilarious. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Beep. Beep. Oh, I think I did actually take out the F bombs. <laughs> it's been a while since I've done this. Yeah. I, I want some of the stuff that bloke's on. Oh, oh, here, really good. Oh, oh my god. god. Oh, oh my god. Oh. What the f is this? He sounds just like one of the training captains I used to fly. Yeah, no, I think that was the uh, <laughs> 
Oh, you've heard that commentary before. Absolutely. <laughs> when you're at the what controls. The what the? Yeah. You're like, shh, I'm trying to concentrate. <laughs> Shut up. Here. It worked out just fine. See? Great. No so problems. I, I was talking, uh, Rick and I were talking about this earlier in the week, and I said, it looks to me like it just, he kind of flared a little bit too high and just kind of held it there too long. And, and, and then finally, um, something happened, uh, and the airplane just gave up trying to continue to fly and, and, and came down. And Rick, you mentioned there was some kind of a system that may have kicked in yeah. here. Yeah. So the, uh, so to, to go back to what we were talking about, I, I agree with you. I think that, uh, that maybe they flew the flare a little high. And then he kind of held it off. And then well, the problem with that is that as you do that, as you, as you, as you hold the nose uh, off and you try to, you know, <laughs> flare, the problem is that your speed starts to decrease rapidly. And the idea here is to touch down at what's called ref speed. So you, 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 you fly your entire approach at VREF, whatever your flap setting is in this case, perhaps 30 VRF 30 and you add five knots. So you, you, you always fly with a five knot uh, additive to that. And then during the flare, you're supposed to bleed those five knots off and touch down precisely at your uh, reference speed. Um, the issue here is that since apparently he flared a little high and so the speed started to drop that, uh, the problem with, with touching down below ref speed is that, uh, it is very, very possible that you might strike the tail uh, in an effort to keep the nose up and to um, make a soft touchdown. Now, to counteract this, the 777, through its uh, fly-by-wire system, has a very, very interesting uh, way of uh, protecting you from, or not protecting you, but uh, helping or uh, to helping you to avoid a tail strike situation. So the way this works is that um, the system senses the the your your rotation rate so your flare rate that the, the rate at which you bring the nose up and your sink rate and so what the system does is it actually restricts the amount of travel that the elevator has independent of how much uh pitch input you're uh putting in up in the cockpit and so that's what that uh, that's what that does. Uh, the idea here, as I said, is to uh, to protect you from getting a, a tail strike. So I think that's what came into uh, came into play here, and that's why the nose only went up so high before the wing just basically stopped flying and the airplane settled down on the ground, uh, which uh, made for quite a spectacular video. It did, but it uh, probably saved quite a bit of money uh, not allowing oh, yeah, that thing to hit the tail. Can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. It looks uh, to me a little like uh, they realized they were floating and uh, also began to derotate the airplane about that time, Rick, because uh, <laughs> it floats, floats, floats. As it begins to descend, the nose almost starts dropping there. It started dropping before the main wheels hit on the ground as if they're derotating the aircraft, trying to put it on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you there, Nick, as well. Uh, I don't so know. I reckon the, whoever the other part, the captain might have been, was perhaps just providing a little push on the. I think, and, and I, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Maybe, maybe, yeah. uh, maybe whoever the uh, whoever the uh, the PM was uh, provided a little bit of a uh, positive input there to uh, <laughs> a <bit of> nudge, <laughs> to a little nudge or two to uh, to bring that nose down and, yeah. and and let the airplane help the airplane settle down. But again, I mean, had not had it not been for that uh, for that system. 
uh, it's very, very possible that uh, the uh, the tail might have struck. Now, the interesting thing about this trip, the the triple seven three hundred, is that um, it is so. I mean, for a while before the before the seven four seven dash eight came about, or I believe it was a yeah the seven four seven dash eight before that came about. The the three hundred er for a period of time at least was the longest airplane in the world, and so Boeing came up with um with a series of 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 uh, features. To help uh, prevent tail strikes, and another uh, another interesting feature that the 300ER has is what's called the uh, semi-levered landing gear, uh, and and which uh, basically what that means is that if, if you look at the at the uh, at the main uh, landing gear truck of a 777, you have um, three sets of of uh, of of tires. Right? So you have a set of tires in the back, a set of tires in the center, and a set of tires in the front. So two, two, and two, right? So it's six tires all together, um, and so there's a hydraulic cylinder that connects the landing gear leg to the front two tires. And that cylinder, that, that hydraulic uh, actuator is locked on the ground. And so the way that works is, uh, and this is obviously on the, on the, on the rotation part of, of the, uh, of, of the flight here, as you go to rotate, this uh, actuator pulls the front two wheels. So it pulls the, the, the landing gear, the front two wheels up and then the entire airplane, the entire uh, jet pivots, not on the center set of wheels, but on the aft set of wheels. And that actually gives you uh, a little bit of extra tail clearance to prevent that uh, tail strike. Now, I don't understand if I'm making myself uh, clear here. I, I see Jeff with a little bit of a confused phase on here. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's pretty. that's a pretty in, um, amazing system, actually. No, it is great. It's the semi-levered semi gear. And the cool thing about the semi-levered gear is that they figured that um, uh, on the on the 777-200 freighter, um, they installed that system on there as well, and not, not for tail clearance purposes, but because they realized that by pivoting the entire aircraft on the aft set of wheels that gives you a, a, a slightly higher initial uh, pitch attitude on takeoff, which translates into X more payload that you can carry about uh, that you can put on the plane. So um, on the 300, it was an issue of uh, tail clearance. On the 200 freighter, is uh, you know that translates into money. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Very cool. I, I just need to bring us back about 50% here. Uh-oh. What's that? What do you got? The uh, 777-300 was 74 meters long. The A340-600 was 75.4 meters long. There you go. So the 340-600 was longer. But for for a period, it's before the before the uh, 340-600 came about, the 777-300ER was the... Yeah, yeah, it was. It was yeah, he, he did. the dash eight came about. He did clarify. He said at, at one point it was the longest, but it yeah. didn't stay that way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, quit your bickering, guys. Quit your bickering. <laughs> oh, blast. Yeah. You're still there. <laughs> All right. Well, very good. Uh, Lance, hope, hope that answered your question. Uh, it was fun, especially. Oh, it turns out that I thought that the uh, audio that I was playing was from uh, somebody actually taking the video on the ground. But it actually was from the, it was a cockpit recording. It was. Uh, is that, is that the yeah. CBR? Okay. <laughs> so that's what. That I, I know the name of that training captain as well. <laughs> hey, Becky wrote in and uh, she said, according to uh, CNBC, 
only one U.S. airline cracked the list of the 10 safest carriers in oh, 2021. Really? I know. And it wasn't even the good one. <laughs> well, it <laughs> depends on your... It wasn't Acme is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. It was... Uh, it must be Speed It was tape Speed Tape Airlines. Yeah, I can't believe yeah. that they... Definitely speed tape I don't know how they... Uh, they must have. They must Money have uh, rewritten the books. Mm. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Cracked, they speed tape cracked the list. Um, <laughs> anyway, Becky Roche, uh, Roush sent a uh, uh, link to this article from CNBC. Now you know the thing about this. Okay, let's just talk about the top ten list: Qantas, Qatar, Air New Zealand, or Qatar, Air New Zealand, Singapore, Emirates, Eva Air, Etihad, uh, Alaska. There's the uh, U.S. carrier, Cathay Pacific, British Airways. Um, but uh, you look at the safety record. Um, well, it says in 2021. Do they, do they mean 2020? Huh. I don't know. Mm. Regardless, if they're talking about 2020, 2021, uh, all the, I mean, the the safety record is amazingly good. I mean, they're all, I think they all could be on this list. I'm not sure exactly what they did to um, determine exactly, you know, their positions on this list. But I, I went onto the website um, and took a look around, Jeff, and they yeah. do use, uh, I mean, for a start, they've got uh, four or five um, highly credited aviation journalists assembling this list. Mm-hmm. So I think there's any doubting the credentials of the people who make the decisions. But one point they do make is that the margin between the top 20 any airline in the top 20 is tiny, absolutely yeah. tiny. So, um, you know, and a lot of incidents that occur that might put one airline above the other are actually nothing really to do with the airline. It, it could be entirely weather-related. It, it could be all sorts of factors that the airline really has no major control over. So they do emphasize that uh, all the airlines, at least in their top 20, are extremely safe, uh, but eventually they have to pick, you know, a list. If they're going to make a list, you've got to put someone at the top, someone at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And they, they, but uh, yeah, uh, it's actually quite an interesting website, and certainly the people who uh, are part of it and making these decisions. I was just uh, pretty um, impressed with their credentials. Very, very good. All right. Well, the uh, 11 through 20, um, the U.S. did a little bit better. Uh, Virgin Australia, Virgin Atlantic was number 11. I don't know. It's interesting they grouped them in the same uh, yeah, listing there. Yeah, they're com- run in a completely different manner by completely different yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing they've got in common is a, a V. Yeah. Uh, Hawaiian Airlines, Southwest Airlines, Delta Airlines, American Airlines, Scandinavian, Finnair, Lufthansa, KLM, and United. So, uh, in the in the second ten, uh, looks like the most of the majors here in the U.S. Were, are on that list. So, uh, I will note, though, uh, Liz, that there are no uh, Canadian airlines in this top twenty. Just, hmm. just thought I'd mention that. Can I, Canada have airlines? <laughs> well, they used to. I don't know. After COVID, <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I think they may have I, shut I them all down. <laughs> the Canadian, uh, a Canadian airline showed up on their other lists. 
So they were going to release a oh the bad safest, list the naughty boy list safest best low cost airlines. So oh, WestJet oh, okay. was on that list and also oh, safest for COVID. Yeah. Okay, I thought everyone go. in Canada got around by snow dog or something. Don't think dog sled by sled. <laughs> they do that. Yeah, yeah. nah, mushing. Yeah, no. yeah mush. That's how they get the airplanes, Apple. Let's mush along then, shall we? Thank you, Becky, for sending that in. Um, oh, this is a good one. Ryan um, from Wichita, Kansas, sent us some audio feedback, and it's it's really interesting feedback, I think. And uh, we're going to go ahead and yeah, I think Ryan was the guy. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz. That I was uh, I was commenting on how impressed I was with the way he. Uh, wrote, uh, I think he wrote, uh, sent us some written feedback uh, a while back, and I was very impressed with the way he structured his, structured his writing. I cannot speak right now, uh, but uh, Ryan can, and so he's going to wow us with his speaking skills right now. So take it away, Ryan. Hello, APG crew. This is Ryan from Wichita, Kansas, leaving you some feedback. I'm recording this on January 5th, 2021. As I drive back from a small airport near Wichita, and I will get to the reason here in just a minute. I left my last feedback in about, uh, I think it was in March when I left the last feedback, and I was updating you all on my current situation. That was my first time leaving feedback. I've been listening to the show for about two and a half years now. Um, And in that feedback back in March, I mentioned that I had begun my flight training and put it on hold due to the pandemic. Uh, Well, I resumed that flight training in May, around the beginning of May continued through, or actually about the middle of May, and then I continued through June and July. On July 26th, I got my private pilot's license, and uh, the other major obstacle that I've been battling is a restriction on my medical. I've got a first-class medical with a restriction for no night flying or uh, flying by color signal control, which is basically light guns, and that restriction is because of a uh, my color vision deficiency. I, the Ishihara plates is the name of the standard test that most pilots get at their medical. I uh, I failed that plates test, so I had to pursue other other options uh, to remove that restriction from my medical because I, um, I my goal is to become a commercial pilot. I mentioned in the last feedback that I'm a high school senior, or actually I guess I was a junior at that point. I'm a high I'm a senior in high school now, and uh, with the goal of becoming a commercial pilot and obviously someone with a uh, restriction for no night flying is not going to have a very good chance of becoming a commercial pilot. So I've been uh, pursuing my options. I met with, uh, I went and visited a doctor near Chicago, Dr. Bruce Chin. Maybe some other people on the show are familiar with him who specializes in uh, complex medical certification issues. Uh, He explained the whole process to me and I uh, applied to get approval to take the test back in uh, um, September. It's a three-part test to remove this restriction. And the first part is, the first two parts are called the OCVT, that's Operational Color Vision Test. And that consists of a sectional chart test as well as a light gun test. The third part, which I just took today, is the medical flight test. And that third part, the flight test, is required if you're going to get a second or first class medical, which is something I obviously uh, will need to become a commercial pilot, so I'm going ahead and getting that medical now. So I, uh, like I said, I applied for approval back in August or September. After about four weeks, I got a letter in the mail from the uh, FAA office in Oklahoma City, the, the uh, medical office in Oklahoma City, that I was approved to take the, the test, all three portions. And I uh, then scheduled that, and uh, we, I ended up taking the first two parts, 
which is considered the, which is under the umbrella of the OCVT. Again, it's the uh, charts, the sectional charts and the light gun. I, I took that in early December and uh, I'll just briefly kind of summarize what each one was like in case anyone else is listening with the same problem as me. The sectional chart test took about five to 10 minutes and I was just quizzed on various colors, um, terrain, uh, colors, background colors that, that represent different levels of terrain, um, as well as different airports, VORs, NDBs, the different blue and magenta spots on, on the sectional chart, as well as some uh, gray spots, cities that are in yellow, as well, uh, and other features on the sectional. So I passed that portion, and then we went outside and got uh, 10 light gun signals from the air traffic control tower, and this is probably the most stressful part for most people, including myself, because you have one chance to get all 10 light gun signals correct, and if you miss any one of them, again, it's red, green, and white lights, if you miss any one of those signals, then um, your restriction is almost certain to be permanent, and you will not be able to get it removed in any manner at any time in the future, because uh, you're required to get all 10 correct, and they typically do not accept a retest, or allow a retest. Luckily, I got all 10 correct where I was taking the test. We had a good LED light gun. What I found in practicing for the test is that some towers have very, very old light guns. Uh, One of the other towers in town had a light gun that they believed was from the 1960s, and it was uh, faded and and not very uh, strong. So we took it at a different airport, which had a brand new LED light gun, only about six-month-old light gun, and a very vivid green and red and white, very uh, easy to make the distinction, no problem there, passed that portion of the test. Um, With those two things done, the flight portion was a little bit more difficult to plan for because we had to schedule it for a good weather day when one of the people from the FISTO, the Flight Standards District Office, was available to administer the test. It needs to be someone who's familiar with uh, going up in the aircraft. So I got that scheduled and it, uh, right before Christmas, and then it was delayed, and then I was actually getting concerned because there were some talks of the government entering a government shutdown uh, because there was a, a kind of an impasse in Congress. But luckily that did not happen because that would have delayed my test even longer. And uh, But they passed the funding bill, and I took the test, the flight portion, today, uh, January 5th, as I, re- I just, just finished the test about 20 minutes ago, and I'm recording this now uh, in the afternoon. And... Um, I went up for about, it was about a 20 minute flight and with a person from the Flight Standards District Office, a very nice gentleman who um, asked me about some different uh, colors. We went over to the nearby Air Force Base and they uh, gave us permission to fly uh, to transition their class Delta and we looked from above at all of their approach light systems. They were able to turn on all their approach lights at full intensity. I identified some of the different colors such as the white sequence flashers up to the runway, the white runway edge lights. The, uh, there's some, a couple of red lights right in front of the threshold, and then there's a green runway threshold light, or a uh, row of runway threshold lights that are green there. Identified all those, then we flew back uh, out of that area, and we uh, identified some colors on the ground, uh, particularly some areas that might serve as good and bad emergency landing spots. Uh, something that's important is they want to check that you have uh, good depth perception and can identify terrain uh, abnormalities such as like bridges and uh, waterways and whatnot. So that was the, that we, we identified about probably about a dozen of those. And we landed up just about 20 minutes after we took off. I, on landing, I, uh, on, on final approach, I identified the, the papulites and, and told him, we started out a little bit high and then I did I told him as each light uh, switched from white to red and then I got two red and two white uh, as we were, as I was on glide path towards the end. So that was the end of the flying portion. We landed, uh, 
good. It was actually crosswind, a pretty good crosswind today, and I made a good landing, and he complimented me on that, so that was nice. And then he informed me that I had passed the test, and that was a huge relief because it's been many years now of uh, hoping to become an airline pilot in the future, some type of commercial pilot. I want to be an airline pilot, hopefully. Um, it's been many years of think of wanting to do that, but not knowing for sure that I would be able to because of this, uh, because of this uh, color vision, minor color vision deficiency I have, but but significant enough to to need to do specialized tests to to get that taken off my medical. So now that it's uh, now that I passed that test, some forms will be sent off to the FAA, and they will send me a new medical in the mail. Uh, it'll be just like my old one with uh, everything the same, except it'll have no restrictions on it whatsoever. And they will also send me a letter of evidence that basically says anytime I go to a AME, Aviation Medical Examiner, in the future, that examiner does not even need to test me on color vision at all. I've been approved by the FAA for life. Color vision, um, color vision does not change as you as you age. So. I am approved for life. I will never have to take another color vision test of any type again, at least not for um, for, the, for the FAA. So obviously it's a yeah, very exciting day for me, probably one of the best days of my life, if I'm being honest, because this is a, uh, it's kind of my dream career to be an airline pilot. And this was a major obstacle, one of the only major obstacles standing in the way. So during this whole time while I've been waiting, I've been getting planning uh, a couple different options in case I passed or failed. I applied to several aviation degree programs at colleges, and I applied to um, non-aviation related programs at other colleges. But luckily now, it looks like I'll be able to go ahead and pursue those aviation degree programs. I've been accepted at Ohio State University, University of Oklahoma, Kansas State University, Baylor University, um, and Oklahoma State University, which all have aviation programs there at the schools uh, with their own fleet of aircraft and everything. So I've got lots of options. Uh, Oh, and I also applied to Purdue University. I'll be hearing back from them soon. I'm probably most likely to go to the University of Oklahoma uh, because it's not far from where I live and they have an aviation program that I am very interested in, but I'm not exactly certain yet. Um, it'll, I'll probably I'll be deciding in the next few months where I want to go from there or uh, where I decide to go to college. But obviously a very exciting day for me and I just wanted to share this news with you all because it's obviously of uh, significant personal importance to me, but also it uh, might affect some other people who are in my same situation because there are a uh, there is quite a large population of uh, people, especially men. It's much more common for men to be colorblind, so uh, it's 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 not a small group of people that necessarily uh, that don't want to be pilots and have uh, color vision issues and want to try and get the, the a waiver form. And I am uh, now someone who is lucky enough to have one a, a waiver for life. Switching to a different recording here because there was something else I wanted to mention. Um, and that is that I know that some people might think it's a bad time to enter the aviation industry or get ready to go to college for aviation when there's a pandemic and the airlines aren't doing so hot. But my thought is that hopefully about five years from now would be the time that I'd be ready to get a job in an airline. And hopefully the situation will be much better by then, uh, assuming there's not another pandemic. Anyway, so uh, that is my feedback for today. I appreciate the uh, great show. Keep up the good work. And I uh, look forward to seeing what else you guys do the rest of this year. And maybe um, maybe Oshkosh will get to happen and I'll get to uh, meet up with some of you later on um, once things are maybe a little bit more back to normal. I know uh, several people now in my uh, – several people I know personally have now gotten the vaccine, which is pretty promising. And um, hopefully that will continue and we can get back to some of our uh, exciting – more exciting normal life activities from before the pandemic. And again, thanks for the show and I'll see you soon. All right. Uh, Well, that deserves a big round of applause. 
and even some noisemakers thrown in. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Only the best for Ryan, man. Mini counselor, not only passing the uh, the, uh, vision testing requirements that were in place for him and then also being accepted to multiple universities and other applications in process. And yeah, for, um, you know, high school senior, definitely good head on your shoulders and, and, Think have his, all of your ducks in a row there. I think his sure. timing is going to be pretty good. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I have no doubt. I mean, that you're, you're, you're certainly getting in at the uh, at the bottom of things, and by the time you're done, it's just going to be – I look at it as, as you know, when when um, when the um, Apollo missions were would send uh, you know the, the capsule to the moon, they actually had to – not aim for the moon, but actually aim at some point in space and wait for the moon to catch up with mm-hmm. them. It's kind of like that with what you're doing. I think it's great. You're going to be, you're, you're, you're sitting pretty. Um, by the time things come back to normal, you're going to be ready. Good analogy there. Yep. I have, yeah, a great analogy. Um, I have a qu- couple of questions or a couple of comments. One, one main question. He mentioned that now he never has to take another color test color blindness test again i'm thinking i don't know how many times i've taken the dark color blindness thing (laughs) over the years i'm thinking you're telling me i only had to do it once (laughs) right because you said it doesn't change over the years what what's going on here yeah, uh, uh, it's probably a hundred dollars per test. So I'd have a word with your doctor if I were you. Yeah, be good charging point. you every time. Yeah. Well, it probably has more to do too with, um, I, you know, and I will say this just from my standpoint too. As I'm doing a physical exam, I have certain things that I know I need to hit each time. But if I do them out of order, even if I know one of them is very one. unlikely to change then I miss what I'm doing. So gotcha. it just happens in the same order every single time. And honestly, if you've passed it before, there's no reason to think you're not going to pass it the next time. So it's not mm-hmm. anything to be to be concerned about. And it takes seconds to do those uh, issue heart color. It, interestingly, I mean, I, I had no, I didn't know that uh, once, you know, once you've been tested for cl- color blindness, it doesn't, it doesn't disappear as you grow older, like some other yeah, things. I'd ask for a <laughs> refund, Jeff. Yeah. It's, I it's mean, barring, barring other things that would affect your vision yeah. catastrophically or, or your ability to perceive um, visual inputs, so something um, intracranial. I have to do so. I do have to say, though, it, it has been at least the current AME that I go to. I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever done a color blindness test with this particular outfit. So maybe they know this, maybe they know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, cause it. it's, mm-hmm. as, as, as the feedback says, uh, you pass it. And as long as there's no issues there, yeah. uh, you, you never have to take yeah. it again. As long as you haven't had, you know, eye injury, head injury. I mean, things that would really alter your sense so of vision. What, in what are you, ways. what are you saying? Their stuff. Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, anyway, I just wanted to say to Ryan, those I, red lights, Jeff. Uh, <laughs> we're wondering why. Just wanted to say to Ryan, um, thanks for sending that feedback in because certainly we've had that question many times before mm-hmm. from people who are aspiring pilots who know they have a color uh, deficiency, uh, color vision deficiency, and um, you know that's a, a scary thing to to have to deal with when you know that that's the career path you want to take, but there's a lot of uncertainty as to whether it's even going to be possible if you can't pass the required testing. So it's nice to hear from you exactly what all of those tests entail in some yeah. detail. Um, you know, it's all written down on the FAA's website. It's it's easy to find, but it's nice to hear it from the actual, hey, I showed up, here's what they had us do. Here's exactly. how many times we had to look at the light gun signals. You know, here's what they pointed out on the 
the sectional. Here's what we did on the flight portion. Here's what they were looking for. That's interesting with the, um, you know, because you think about it with, it's not so much just how our, our um, eyes and brains interpret color around us, but it's also the, the ability to perceive differences in colors that might appear similar to us. Mm. Um, and that can have some to do with your depth perception and other, other things along those lines. So that's really what they're, uh, from a functional standpoint, they want to see those things. And also this points out the importance of finding a doctor like uh, Dr. Bruce Chen. Uh, by the way, I'll have uh, information from his website on, in the show notes uh, in case you're one of those out there that may have the same kind of an issue or another um, difficult issue that you have to work through to get uh, medically qualified. Um, and, um, you know, it was interesting that he said that he went to an airport that had one of the new LED um, guns or uh, light guns and not one of those old ones that I'm not even sure well, somebody would, I would have a hard time. I know. Like what if you'd if taken the test? Bright or... What if, yeah, he'd taken a test at one of those old installations, you know, a, a light gun from the sixties. Um, it, it may have been a different outcome. And so that's mm -hmm. so important to find a, a, the right scenario and the right um, doctor to kind of help guide yeah. you through these things. I bet he knew. No, no, you need to go to this airport here. This is the one that yeah, has the set new... yourself up for success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Exactly right. That's and do your feedback. research on your, your uh, medical providers. Congratulations, Ryan. I'm sure that we'll be hearing more from you in the future. And, and, and as we have all said, thank you for the in-depth description of all these tests and, and that sort of thing. This is good, good information for people out there mm -hmm. that are having these same kind of issues. All right. Well, you know what time it is. It's the best best part of the show. It's time for this week's Plane Tales. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's Plane Tales. Whether the weather. Whether the weather be cold or whether the weather be hot. We'll weather the weather, whatever the weather, whether we like it or not. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Clear moon, a frost soon. Mackerel skies and mares' tails make tall ships carry low sails. Ring around the moon means rain real soon. Whether you use old wives' tales, seaweed, or rocks to forecast your weather, if you're a pilot, you'll probably want something a little more scientific, although many weather rhymes are in fact based on fact. Nowadays, however, we are blessed with more ways to get the weather than one can shake proverbial sticks at. And certainly in the world of aviation, it's all pretty accurate, even if it's presented in a fairly archaic code. Of course, even that is pretty advanced when compared with the early days. Having said that, Wilbur and Orville Wright made good use of weather records available to them from the government weather observers to choose Kitty Hawk as the location for their experimentation with gliders and eventually their successful first flights. Before we get to that, though, let's look a little further back into the history of weather forecasting. The Upanishads of India 
late Vedic Sanskrit texts around 5,000 years old make mention of the process of cloud formation and seasonal rain cycles caused by the movement of the earth around the sun. Thales may qualify as the first ancient Greek meteorologist as he reputedly issued a seasonal crop forecast and Democritus, who lived around 400 BC, predicted changes in the weather and he used his ability to convince people that he could predict other future events. Although Hippocrates' work included discussions on the weather and his treatise, Air, Waters and Places, it was Aristotle actually called one of his works Metrology. He had rather fanciful notions of the four elements, fire, air, water and earth, having interactions that explained a great many natural phenomena. His observations of the weather, though, were more accurate than many. For example, he tells us that when there is a great quantity of exhalation and it is rare and is squeezed out of the cloud itself, we get a thunderbolt. He certainly strikes a chord when he explains what we now know as the hydrological circle, the continuous cycle of water from the surface into the air through evaporation and its return via precipitation. Now the sun, moving as it does, sets up processes of change and becoming and decay, and by its agency the finest and sweetest water is every day carried up and is dissolved into vapour and arises to the upper region, where it is condensed again by the cold and so returns to earth. In China, the philosopher Wang Chong dispelled the myth of rain coming from the heavens, concluding that rain is evaporated from water on the earth into the air and forms clouds, stating that clouds condense into rain, although he quotes this idea as coming from earlier theories proposed centuries before. Even Jesus has something on the subject of weather, saying in the New Testament, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the Middle Ages, there were scientific discoveries that explained some of the principles that cause our weather, although many scholars believed it was still linked to astrology and the position of the stars. In the 17th century, the tools of modern weather forecasting were starting to appear, with Galileo Galilei's construction of a thermoscope, a glass tube containing globes of different density that will rise or fall depending on the change in air density with temperature. In 1643, Evangelista Torricelli invents the mercury barometer, and a few years later, Pascal calculated the weight of air and proved that above the atmosphere there lay not some invisible matter, then known as plenum, but a vacuum. The 18th century sees Bernoulli publish the basic laws of gases. Hadley explaining global atmospheric circulation and Fahrenheit inventing the mercury thermometer. But in the 19th century, the advances come thick and fast. Luke Howard, the subject of an earlier tale, assigns cloud names that we still use today.
Francis Beaufort classifies wind speeds, and it's Gaspard Gustav Coriolis who recognises the basis for the turning force we now know as the Coriolis effect. All the scientific principles were coming together, and there was a growing interest in predicting weather, driven in the main by the needs of shipping. But it was a storm in 1859 and the loss of the steam clipper Royal Charter that galvanised action to create the very first formal forecasting system. The Royal Charter was considered a modern and powerful vessel, driven by sail and steam, and was returning from Australia to Liverpool in England. As the ship reached the island of Anglesey, a mere 75 miles from their destination, the captain decided to continue past the safety of Hollyhead Harbour and continue on. The glass was falling as the air pressure decreased, and the wind eventually reached Storm Force 12, driving the ship onto the rocky coast of Anglesey. With many passengers returning from the Australian gold rush, bullion in the hold was insured for £322,000, over £40 million in today's money. And there was much more held by the many successful prospectors on board. Apart from the enormous loss of wealth, there was a tragic loss of life, with only 40 being saved from the complement of nearly 500 passengers and crew. In the face of this calamity, a new department within the British Board of Trade was formed with Vice Admiral Robert Fitzroy at its head, the forerunner of the Met Office. Fitzroy established a chain of observation stations around the country linked by the newfangled telegraph system, passing daily weather reports back to him. Independently, the same concept was starting in the United States, with reports being sent to the Smithsonian Institute, but the US Weather Bureau wouldn't be formed for a decade. Ship's captains were tasked with the collection of data on the weather from instruments loaned to them for the purpose, and they passed it on. With this data, Fitzroy began to develop weather charts that would allow him to make predictions which he called forecasting the weather, the first time the term was coined. Before long, the daily forecasts were being published in the Times newspapers, giving the public their first taste of what the weather might be for the day. The very first stated, the temperature in London was to be 62 degrees, clear with a southwesterly wind. Although it would be a few years into the future, in 1911 the Met Office began issuing marine weather forecasts, which included gale and storm warnings via radio transmission for areas around Great Britain. Occasionally seven later, except in South Fitzroy. Showers, thundery in east, good occasionally poor in east. Lundy, Fastnet, The service has now been running for over 153 years and includes 31 sea areas around the British Isles with quaint names well known to the British such as Dogger, Fisher, German Bite, Trafalgar and Fitzroy named after the man who began it all.
As the emphasis moved from the sea into the air, the advances in air travel were exceeding the capability of forecasting to predict, and it wasn't until 1918 that the U.S. Weather Bureau began issuing bulletins and forecasts for domestic military flights and the new airmail routes. Recognising the important connection between weather forecasting and aviation, on May 20, 1926, Congress passed the Air Commerce Act. This act included legislation directing the Weather Bureau to furnish weather reports, forecasts and warnings to promote the safety and efficiency of air navigation in the United States. Back then, most of the effort was to find out what was happening, not what would be happening. Weather observations were mainly taken from the ground, and there was no real way to gather accurate information from the sky above other than tracking a balloon or listening to reports from pilots after they landed. Over the years, technology would evolve, and weather would be collected from regular med-aircraft flights, an improvement from earlier kite observations, in addition to radio sons, battery-powered instruments attached to a balloon that transmitted readings back to the ground via radio. In Britain, the efforts put into weather forecasting was intense, as it was considered a vital part of the war effort in the 40s. The Met Office had already become part of the War Office following the First World War, and it then came under the umbrella of the Air Ministry, with Met offices located at all RAF airfields. Probably the most important job of forecasting during the war was for the invasion of Normandy, the landings that would eventually bring about the defeat of Nazi Germany. In spite of meticulous planning for all other aspects of the invasion, the one thing that General Eisenhower couldn't control was the weather. For advice on this, he looked to a team of meteorologists led by Group Captain J.M. Stagg from the Met Office. Conditions in early June were extremely unsettled, and the forecasters on both sides of the channel needed all the information they could get in order to predict when the invasion might occur. Stagg and his team relied on synoptic charts to give them what they needed. A little-known by-product of the work done at Bletchley Park to crack the German Enigma code was that the D-Day forecasters had access not only to observations from Allied observers and reconnaissance flights, but also to all the German metrology observations as well. Stagg and his team identified both the bad weather, which resulted in the postponement of the invasion on the 5th, and then correctly identified the weather window, which enabled it to go ahead on the 6th. Probably the only day during the month of June on which the operations could have been launched, President Truman said later. Post-war and the new radar technology was proving to be very useful in local area forecasting, particularly for detecting precipitation. In the US, the first radars to be used were 25 surplus aircraft sets, which were modified for meteorology use, and following the development of pressurised jet aircraft, the importance of forecasting upper-level winds became obvious. 
jet streams were first detected by the Japanese metrologist, Wasabura Oshi, but his work was largely ignored since he chose to publish his findings in Esperanto. With more and more air traffic flying in the upper atmosphere, the locations and movement of jet streams, a term coined by the German metrologist Heinrich Seelkopf, became important to aviation forecasting since they have a major effect on flight times. We also now know that they have a significant effect on climate cycles, and many, such as El Nino and La Nina, have been named. The format of Aviation Met Report has been more or less unchanged since 1996, a format that replaced the older coding that had been around since the early 50s. The question that every new aviator asks, of course, is why does the weather have to be coded in the first place? There are, after all, 38 different codes for weather events in the standard World Meteorological Organization list, some of which are easy to remember, like RA for rain, but others that confuse. UP, UP, means unknown precipitation, and PY means spray. Codes can be added together, like RAB15E25, which means rain began at 15 minutes after the last hour and ended at 25 minutes after the last hour. Of course, being the United States, the US has a few additional ones, their list reaching 119, with entries such as Chino, C-H-I-N-O, meaning sky condition at secondary location not available, and WG forward slash SO, meaning working group for surface observations, although why on earth you'd need that in a forecast or actual defeats me. The reason for the complications of codes come down to the historical limitations of transmitting mediums, originally Morse code and later teleprinters and the like, so brevity was essential. In 1996, this was still the excuse, and I quote, The current SA code has been in place for over 40 years, and the conversion to METAR is a follow-on, which is not very different. As for having these products reported in a plain language format, this is not feasible. Whether that still applies in 2021, I have no idea. Remembering back to my training, a great deal of emphasis was then placed on interpreting surface observation charts, upon which was a plethora of station circles, or more formally, station models. Little change since 1941. These intricate and complicated sigils were invented to allow an abundance of observation data from each location to be compressed into a small space so that they could fit onto a weather map. Pilots were expected to decode these observations and from the data, work out all that they needed from the chart, such as en route weather, winds, 
frontal locations, icing conditions, and destination forecasts, etc. The basic station consisted of a circle with a flag sticking out. Segments of the circle were coloured in to represent the amount of cloud cover, and the flag showed wind direction with tags indicating speed. Around this was a confusing array of dots and squiggles, showing cloud type, pressure and tendency, temperature, dew point, present weather, visibility, past weather, and the like. This was repeated for every observation on the map, and overlaid were isobars, allowing a measurement of the wind speed and direction. But since this was for the surface, a good knowledge of how the weather changed with height was essential. I hadn't seen one of those charts for many years, so perhaps they've entered into the world of Met history and good riddance. I happen to like my current weather forecast app on my phone that tells me, blah, 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 it's only a matter of time until it rains. Blah, blah, blah. I'm glad you didn't quote, uh, what's that app that's on the, everybody's that's phone? Exactly what I was going to say. WT Forecast? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly I was thinking where of the same thing. From. <laughs> blah, yeah. blah, blah, might rain soon. Except <laughs> fill in the blank. It's not blah, blah, yeah, blah. But, uh, uh, it can be. You can, you can adjust your level of, um, you know. Oh, of colorfulness of as long as we're talking yes. about colors. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, what the forecast, I can recommend that to anyone with a sense of humor. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Wow. I just, so, I just, um, who I, had ahead, to learn the station circle? Was was I the only one? No, I think guys... I think uh, I think we all did at some point, and I, and that's why I I just I always go back to that old saying that says that <clears throat> you will never know more about aviation as to the point where you first get started. Like when I was a private pilot, and I knew it. All absolutely everything from FARs to weather to uh, to aviation law to uh, performance. It just because you just you're just it's all fresh in your head there, and it's all new information. But as 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 your career progresses, you start shedding uh, the things that uh, you don't use every day. And so now at the point where you know flying flying for the airlines now, a lot of this stuff is just done for you. Hmm. You know, load and uh, yeah. And uh, so you don't. It's not like you don't need to know it. It it it, uh, it it does come handy, but it's 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 in some in some cases it's 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 information overload. I fear. I fear. Um, but it is very important. Better, I think that uh, especially well, any pilot, but especially professional oh, yeah. pilots, really need to be amateur meteorologists to uh, oh, know, live in this world that we. Oh, you can make your life in. so much safer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and even and even in the in the new uh, in the new uh, EFBs uh, when you when you select um, uh, there's 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 certain um, uh, options that you can uh, display on the map there uh, mm-hmm. for flight as well even though I don't, I don't use for flight and uh, it, it all it all harkens back to this to this uh, uh, you know old uh, old information and I guess the presentation of it just hasn't changed because it's so so effective yeah. so yeah you do, you do need to know it. You do need to know it absolutely. I'm not saying that. But I, I certainly miss the days when I used to be able to uh, walk into the med office in a, on our base 
and uh, actually speak to the Met Man mm -hmm. and go, well, look, I've got a mission at 3 o'clock this afternoon. Weather's looking a bit dodgy. Can you talk me through what the conditions are likely to be? And he would just explain to you exactly what was going on face-to-face, -face, uh, which is something you can't really get out of uh, all the modern aids we have. Was that yeah, something that I you did that. in your um, in your military days? Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, that's yeah, right. same Every thing. Air Force Base had a, had a med office with a, a couple of uh, guys who just took observations yep. and then actually a med officer who was a proper forecaster and uh, you know if you needed to you could just tackle him in fact every morning he would come along to the big station briefing that everyone attended uh, with a whole bunch of uh, overhead projector slides remember those yep. <laughs> and uh, give a presentation on the day's weather with cross-sectional charts and the whole nine yards so I think it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question from Rich. Not really. What's <laughs> um, funny is, is uh, jump pilots so, oftentimes, if the weather has not um, done what it was forecast to do, say, you know, low uh, fog or cloud cover has hung around longer than forecast or predicted, then we start, we're the ones who start getting the, the questions. There's no other well, meteorologists yeah. on the field. It's like, well, how long is Absolutely. this going to last? Should we stick around? Should we do? Or mm. going, um, no, I don't know. Well, it's pretty it looks cloudy still. So. I, I do remember we had a, a, a briefing when I was a student pilot, and the guy was there giving the briefing, uh, saying and that his slides, that they were going to have a clear day, it was going to be fine and lovely, and the rain from that he'd encountered walking to the briefing room had washed all half the writing off his slides. So we're going, sorry, you said it's going to be a clear day and it's it's howling with rain outside. <laughs> <We're> just, <"Huh?" laughs> Are you sure? I remember the importance of going to the um, weather briefing um, area of base operations, especially when I was a T-37 instructor pilot because anytime we went on cross countries on that airplane, or in that airplane, if the if two words were mentioned, one right after the the other, and those two words are embedded thunderstorms, yeah. uh, we weren't going that way because that airplane didn't have a radar <laughs> nor a storm scope or anything else. So you definitely don't want to be flying around in embedded thunderstorms in an airplane that doesn't have radar. So anyway probably i didn't know uh, yeah. much better before that you know i flew the c141 starlifter which had a pretty good radar and uh, once you have it you never want to fly anything without it <laughs> so oh yeah so i'd love to know from any uh new pilots currently going through their training do you still need to learn the station circle hmm. well you let's know, hear I from i honestly you. don't remember so if I did, that was one of the first pieces of information that my brain let go of. You got dumped, yeah. Well, there's yeah, a state. I remember learning about them. I remember learning about them, and I remember being tested on them. Um, there, I think there might have been test questions on it, but I don't know how much yeah. I actually. There's a station down the road. Uh, it's a Circle K. Is that what you're talking about? The Circle <laughs> yes, that's K. The one. Yeah, I need to refresh my soda. Okay. <laughs> Run on down to the Circle. That's not what you're talking about. Okay. All right. Well, excellent plain tale as always. Thank you, Nick, for all the hard work you put into those. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, let's see. Kind of uh, not getting a lot accomplished here today, but that's okay. You know what happens? We always move the feedback to the next show. So, and that makes Liz happy, actually. More The more feedback, the better. Um, let's pick up where we left off. Uh, Robert 
sent in this. He said, APG crew, you will enjoy this interview based on your reaction to Captain Nick's fabulous plane tales. And of course, he's referring to the plane tale that you did on uh, Jaeger, uh, Chuck Jaeger, the legend. And uh, I have a just a little excerpt from this video. Hopefully, we won't get in trouble for playing it. And we'll have a link to the full um, interview. Uh, and it's definitely worth watching. I, I really enjoyed watching it myself. So here, here's a little teaser. The X-1 was fun to fly. Uh, that's the way we looked at it because very interesting. See, you're doing research flying. You're, you're doing things that, and solving problems that no one else has ever been able to solve. So it's interesting to see all these things come along, uh, running out of elevator. I was new, you know, all the engineers said, Jesus, what's going on, you know? And, and uh, then flying the with the flying tail, that was something new. And uh, it, uh, it turned out pretty good, really. Uh, and actually, you really don't think about the outcome of any kind of a flight, whether it's combat or, or any other kinds of flights, uh, because you really have no control over it. And that's the way I looked at the X-1. You don't worry about the outcome, obviously. You concentrate on what you're doing to do the best job you can to stay out of, uh, out of a serious situation. And that's the way the X-1 was. When we got it above Mach 1 without it flying apart, you know, you can laughingly say now, well, I was disappointed because it didn't blow up. But that's not uh, not true. You, you're a little bit surprised that things didn't fly apart because it's what the way you've been sort of thinking. But when it didn't, it, uh, you're relieved. Yeah, very relieved. <laughs> anyway, so that's just a little... That's great. What a... Yeah, I, I love listening to his voice as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, so droll and, uh, you know, such a man. Very good. Oh, yeah. Good West Virginia uh, it's accent. It's interesting, actually. Um, the very next plane tale, uh, we're looking at an airplane, the Hustler, which um, they started designing it only two years after Jaeger broke the sound barrier. What, the B-58? Yeah. Uh, and I'm uh, going... Wow, that they learned so much in mm-hmm. that incredibly short period, uh, enough to build a, a Mac II bomber that was really, uh, you know, absolutely pushes pushed the edges of the envelope. Was groundbreaking design. Yeah, the, the crew ejection so system on that thing is is just oh yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Looking forward yeah. to that. I only one just there. found out that you could you could close that clamshell device and still fly the airplane because the oh, stick yeah. was inside it. So if you've got a bullet hole or you lost the windshield or something, you could the pilot could bang his clamshell shut and carry on flying. <laughs> okay, what? Yeah, yes. amazing. Had a, a great display yeah, on that in the uh, U.S. Air Force Museum in uh, Dayton. Um, good stuff. Yeah, I've got some of my pictures uh, from that. We'll be seeing those uh, next week. Excellent. Okay. Well, look forward to that. And uh, thank you, Mac. Uh, it says Robert, but it's um, in parentheses. Mac Coble sent that in. And if you want to check out this interview on YouTube, uh, please find the link in the show notes. Um, Stefan uh, writes in, and I need to share the photo that he sent uh, that went with his uh, feedback here. Uh, actually, if I do that, here, I'm going to just share the whole darn thing because that way I can read it <laughs> at the same time. Um, Jeff, hope your symptoms turn out to be not COVID. And if it is COVID, my best wishes and hope you get through it quickly and without infecting anyone else. Thank you very much. 
Stefan, I did, and uh, I don't believe I infected anybody else. He says, Dana, always good to hear your updates. Uh, he's referring to the uh, update on his uh, 737 OE. Glad the 737 is working out for you. I still owe you that ride in the TB20. Uh, as it turns out, Which the plane. Uh, that's the Socata Trinidad. The Trinidad, okay. Yeah. Socata, uh, French made, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. As it turns out, the plane was down the last six months getting a new engine, but I am scheduled for the first post-maintenance flight on January 15th, so it should be back in the fleet of the Flying Club soon. January 15th. That was yesterday. So it happened yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Now we just have to figure out how to divert an Acme 737 to Syracuse. Seattle to Boston goes right overhead. Not that I want to get you in trouble. And for everyone, happy 2021. I hope the vaccine does its magic and aviation returns back to normal this year. I've attached an image of the first sunrise I witnessed in 2021 taken over Oneida Lake. Yes, it's taken on the 9th of January, but that's Syracuse weather for you. Cheers, Stefan. And now I'm going to share this because I realized that if I shared it too early, I think I wouldn't have been able to read any of his feedback and that would have been very boring. There we go. Very nice photo hmm. sent in from huh. Stefan. Oh, uh, yeah. Sunrise. Sunrise. Wow. Over on Ida. Now, you'll cool. note that stuff on the lake, that, that is Doesn't water. That liquid. It's in its frozen state. <laughs> hmm. Not a lot of liquid out there, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. My powers of intuition tells me that uh, he's flying north. Ah, you're, I, I would go with Very that as well. Very perceptive. Yes. Yeah. Sharp. That's... We always go for the sharp ones on our on our podcast here. <laughs> One of the requirements. Okay. Um, thank you, Stefan. Hopefully, uh, get a chance to see you sometime this year. Steve writes in. He says, "Hey, gang! I was turned on to your podcast recently by a customer slash fellow aviation enthusiast. I've been listening while doing my new job." It's been a nice way to stay connected with my former job as an airline pilot here in Canada. Like many in our industry, I was furloughed as my airline here practically shut down almost all operations in April of last year. My friend Adam and I were both skippers on the A330 and the 321 CEO slash NEO, or I guess the, uh, what's the C stand for? Uh, Current current engine engine option option and new new engine engine option. option. Okay. Respectively. Um, I was amused when I heard the coffee fund section of the podcast as I was literally roasting fresh coffee from airline pilot to coffee roasting. It has been quite the career change, but we're enjoying it. My business partner and friend Adam, who also works for the same airline, started our own business while enjoying our pandemic-induced sabbatical. We called it Lost Aviator Coffee Company and launched in October. I found your P.O. box, and I'm sending you guys a few samples. I hope you enjoy it. I just checked a couple of days ago, and there was nothing in my box yet. I'm so excited, though. I'm, I'm checking every other day. Uh, just to uh, So when, when we do get the shipment, um, I'm sure that it's only going to be enough for me. I'm sorry, the rest of you, even though he addressed it to everyone. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, you know, you need, to, you need to consume this stuff as soon as possible, you know, when it's best when it's fresh. So I'm sure you all understand, right? Especially when it's no? vacuum packed. Oh, it's fine. Well, you can you can have my share. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, Steph doesn't mind. I 
Um, now, Rick is pointing out uh, something that he sees in the photo, and I guess I'm going to have to share it with you. Um, yeah, look, uh, unfortunately, oh, these are vacuum packed, so um, I guess I don't have an excuse. So, uh, <laughs> busted. Well, yeah. Should've okay. Those pictures with us, Jeff. <laughs> I know. I should have deleted that from the feedback before I shared it with everybody else. Darn it. Just send me a, a small sample so I can just <laughs> smell it. Yeah, I love the smell of coffee. Anyway, oh, coffee. Oh, Steve coffee. Zago from lostaviatorcoffee.com. Again, everybody out there, go to lostaviatorcoffee.com. I will be doing a taste. We will be doing a taste test of said coffee at some point soon, hopefully. And um, great to have you uh, on board as one of the community members, uh, Steve and Adam. And uh, I love their logo too. That's cool. Yeah, I was going to say just that. Yeah, I love the DC3. Yeah, there. Mm-hmm. that's great. Or Dakota, as you fellows across the pond call <laughs> Dakota. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, receiving our little gift, Steve. Um, now, here's an interesting one, item seven. Um, <laughs> did you guys watch this video? I have not had a chance to watch the video, but I this did guy that. is interesting. I'll put it that way. Um, this was sent in from Ben Ellickson uh, via Facebook. I have several interests and passions, like for example, herpetology. I love when two passions. Co- I, what's herpetology? I have no idea what that Herpes, is. Herpes. If you, if well, no, you no, 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 no. I don't no, see. That's it's why like frogs I frogs and snakes. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick. I love when <laughs> I love when two passions come together. <laughs> yes. Wait, I, I got to keep going here. Like uh, aviation and flipping for snakes. Did you know that there is a YouTube Study of reptiles and amphibians? <laughs> There's a YouTube tube channel out there for flipping a flipping seven forty seven four hundred pilot. How do you flip a snake? Well, you need to watch this video, Nick. You'll see him flipping snake. He just like basically. Flips things over and tries to uncover the hiding places of snakes. And these some of these snakes are poisonous that he's out there. He, uh, this particular YouTube clip that um, Ben sent, um, this guy was on layover in Singapore. And a couple of the, I guess, you know, he does this sort of thing on his YouTube channel a lot. Mm-hmm. And somebody saw that he was going to be in Singapore. So a couple local Singaporeans, I don't know if that's what you call somebody that lives in Singapore. Yeah, Joined him, uh, and they're out there in the middle of the night uh, with their flashlights and uncovering things and holding and uh, discovering venomous snakes. It doesn't look like something that I'm interested in at all, but yeah. you know, not one of my passions. Nope. Yeah, no. Yeah, and uh, aviation side, pre- yes. Presumably, you have to be a bit of an adrenaline junkie to uh, do that. Yeah. Yeah, like people yeah, that jump out of airplanes and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. For me, that's not the idea. <laughs> I was going to say something about adrenaline junkies and the uh, reptiles <laughs> and things. There was a frog in my throat all of a sudden. <laughs> I find that very funny. Um, different types of adrenaline junkies, I think. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. We all have our levels of of uh, whatever excitement, whatever. I know that didn't sound right. Sorry. I'm going to move on quickly. Um, Greg. <laughs> Uh, writes in, uh, how do y'all, uh, hope everyone on the crew is doing well and staying healthy. I'm writing this on the recording day for episode 456. Well, scheduled one anyway. 
So I'm assuming that Captain Jeff has recovered from his COVID diagnosis, or at least isn't having any serious symptoms that would keep him from working on the show. I guess Greg, uh, Liz is telling us that Greg was with us in the live audience, but he had to leave. Um, no. Anyway, I have a couple of questions for from episode 455. The first one relates to Nick's plane tale. Since the aircraft in the story was a 747-200 and the date was 1-1-1978, I'm guessing that the plane wasn't equipped with a glass cockpit and mostly had steam gauges. I think that would be a good guess. That is correct. And uh, what could cause the attitude indicator to fail like it did? Isn't it basically a gyroscope that floats in position? Did they have a tendency to get stuck in a particular attitude indication? Yeah, you had to take your foot and kick it a few times every, every I don't know, 15 minutes or so. <laughs> Put sure. in every 15 minutes. <laughs> well, that's why they had the flight engineer. He had a big hand. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, yeah, I'm going to bang on that thing. Just make sure it's not stuck. Um, and then, uh, he also has a second question relating to ditching at sea. So, uh, first one, uh, what would cause the attitude and uh, you know, I don't think this attitude indicator, at least the primary attitude indicator is from the captain and the first officer. Um, even though it's an old ancient airplane from 1978, um, I believe that the gyro itself is probably not internal to the instrument, like some standby attitude, uh, indicators have, built in, you know, the gyro, gyro is actually built into the instrument itself. But I would imagine that there's some kind of a, some kind of a platform, um, attitude have, heading reference system platform, or even inertial reference system platform that, uh, is, is located at some, some point or somewhere in the airplane, not right there next to the attitude indicator. Am I right about that? When it kind of sends yeah, signals yeah, I, from that, that, that that platform. makes that makes sense. The uh, the yeah. and back then it would have been an inertial uh, yeah obviously an inertial inertial platform that feeds that information to uh, the uh, captains and uh, FOs uh, ADIs and give you that uh, to give you that um, that pitch and roll uh, information. Okay. Um, what would cause something so, like that to fail? I mean, it didn't have a. I guess uh, Nick, now you're you know trying to remember from your story. I, I don't believe you said anything about the fact that there was any kind of a attitude flag, like a red flag indicating that the indicator was giving bad information or anything. Yeah, I believe this failure was insidious, so it it didn't wasn't associated with a flag, which normally comes up if you have a power failure to the instrument. Um, more sophisticated ones actually compare the information um, presented on two instruments, so the captains and the FO. So if there is a discrepancy in attitude, uh, it, that'll raise a caution. Uh, and I don't know if this mark of 747 had that. Rick will be able to tell me in a second. Um, it could have been just a simple mechanical locking of the um, gears behind the display. It's an entirely mechanical display. So it's a it's a tin metal ball with uh, markings on it and behind are a whole bunch of gears which move it around. Um, and it can, you know, it's a considerable amount of gimbal freedom. But if one of those gears, was a foreign object or something, perhaps got in amongst them, it could literally physically jam the display in the wrong place. Uh, so the information being fed in by the inertial reference system might well have been correct, 
but the instrument itself physically couldn't move to display the correct information. That that would be one way. Um, but of course, it could be electrical failure. It could be a problem within the inertial reference system itself. But I would have thought anything like that would probably have indicated, given a warning indication. So how close am I, Rick? What are you no, right no, you're, you're spot on, Nick. Absolutely spot on. Um, and uh, as you said, yes, the, uh, I, I don't believe this, this particular model, um, the 747 had uh, what's called an additive comparator. Uh, newer uh, ADIs do. And uh, if I remember correctly, um, off the top of my head, the tolerances are three degrees for uh, bank and uh, one and a half degrees uh, for pitch. So anytime you're outside those parameters, you'll get a uh, you'll get a uh, either a light or a discrete light or a, or, or a newer aircraft at uh, an ECAM or ICAST type message to let you know what the issue is and where to look. Um, another thing we were talking about um, a few days ago is that uh, the Restriction on the autopilot on these old uh, classic 747s. Uh, you had a minimum autopilot engaged altitude of 1,200 feet uh, above the ground, um, and uh, uh, not not that that would have been an issue uh, because uh, the autopilot would uh, also uh, require uh, additive information for it to operate correctly, and if the source of that information is corrupted then, uh, you know, what, what is the autopilot uh, supposed to do? Now, the other thing here is that um, the, um, uh, what was I going to say here? The, uh, the autopilot uh, flight director system, it, uh, it compares many, many parameters, not only attitude, uh, but also uh, uh, bank angle, which is based on your true airspeed at the time. Uh, your heading. So it uh, at at this particular moment, uh, when when this accident happened on the initial climb out, uh, I imagine the the uh, procedure itself could have been flown either by head and select or by uh, lat long uh, waypoints in your uh, INS. And whatever the case is, or whatever the case may have been, uh, you do need to follow a lateral track, right? So you've got to give. Uh, the autopilot or the flight director system, which at the time you're going to be using, you're going to be using a flight director, which is a set of either crosshairs or V bars, which will tell you where to go. And uh, as long as you are satisfying the requirements of set system, say, for example, uh, a heading to fly, as I said, or an initial track to fly, uh, once you get to that particular heading or track, then your roll bar is going to center, letting you know that you are in fact flying the uh, the uh, requested track. Um, so at that point, the 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 primary factor that the autopilot or the flight director would uh, look at is that uh, lateral request, be it a heading or or a, or a lat long position. But the autopilot and the flight director also takes into account uh, uh, your bank angle. And that bank angle information goes back to either uh, an inertial reference input, uh, which has to be correct. Otherwise, how does it know what bank to put in? 
And so uh, as we as we were saying the other day, it was it was it was a very very tricky situation flying. Uh, basically, you know, might as well be an IMC because you had no discernible uh, horizon. There's no way to tell whether uh, you were banked or not. And uh, I mean, that's, I mean, the, the the poor guy just did the best he could with, with what he had, and uh, it sadly it ended uh, it ended bad. So yeah, yeah, it it was clear in the cockpit voice recordings, I guess, Nick, that the flight engineer knew that there was something wrong with the captain's instrument, and I, I'm not sure he was able to convey that very effectively um, because it looked like there was quite a bit of confusion as to what the captain should be looking at as far as his reference. And uh, obviously they were so low above the uh, ocean uh, uh, below them or above the ocean below them that uh, they didn't have a really uh, much of a chance to correct the situation before it impacted the water. No, no, absolutely, Jeff. Uh, they only had a few seconds, quite honestly. But, uh, hmm. yep, uh, one of those le- lessons that uh, we can all take something from because, uh, you know, in, now you've heard about it. Every time you do a departure in the dark, <laughs> I, I highly expect that anyone who's listened to that tale will be thinking, oh, I'm just going to keep an eye on this. If I had this problem, I know what to do now. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Yep. And uh, I won't be caught, I won't be blindsided by it so easily. It's a good reminder to all of us that, uh, you know, especially after hearing stories of, like this, that uh, when you're in the airplane at the controls again in the future, you know, just kind of don't just focus on your own instruments. Look, look over at the first officer's side or the first officer. Look over to the captain's side or look at that standby uh, instrument exactly. and uh, just see if everything looks like it's supposed to look like. <laughs> and if not, then, yeah. you know, you might notice something in time to, uh, you know, correct for it. Huh. And then uh, the, the, the ditching question, uh, Nick, uh, he says um, it, this relates to ditching at sea. Uh, what, what could you do to prevent the underwing engines from catching on the water and either twisting the wings off or ripping them off straight back. Again, that's well, if you're gray. ditching in the sea, quite honestly, you're not too worried about what happens to the engines. <laughs> but uh, out of interest, uh, a lot of airliners with underslung engines uh, are designed so that if they're still producing power and they receive an impact, like as you would get from hitting the water in a ditching situation, um, the rear restraining bolts uh, fracture first, allowing the engine to cartwheel, flip over the wing, hmm. uh, stopping you uh, then from being dragged into the water. Of course, if you're a ditching situation, it's unlikely they're going to be running, uh, in which case they're, they're going to be ripped off. Those restraining bolts are designed to be breakable, um, which is fine because uh, there's not a lot that – if you take the mass of a big aeroplane, there's not a lot that an engine pylon uh, will do to drag the whole aeroplane under. And as long as the fuselage in the main stays intact, then you're going to be able to float around for long enough to get your passengers off. And that really is the whole point of the exercise, get it down safely. Um, so you don't really worry too much about it. You don't put the gear down or anything stupid like that, but you do just land in a normal situation, normal attitude, and hopefully at a fairly normal speed because mm. what you also what you don't want to do, particularly in a long aeroplane like an A340, 
is to get the speed so low that you've got the nose way up in the air because that way when your tail hits the aircraft will flop forward and you'll break the fuselage in two yeah. so we were always taught to land the aircraft in a conventional attitude and a conventional speed and try and do so along the swell rather than into the swell so that you're going with the waves uh, rather than smacking head on or into them and meeting them with force so that that was about it other than that you know uh, if, if you're ditching the sea particularly if it's a rough sea you're really gonna um, decide whether you're gonna pray to uh, god or the devil and uh, hope for the best so don't most new or modern airplanes have that button that you just push to eject the engines yeah, <laughs> before you hit. Yes, it, that would mean that the Airbus had three buttons, Jeff, and that's oh, a bit complicated. Well, too complicated. That would require <laughs> more training. <laughs> yeah, we would. Yeah, another another fortnight in the sim. <laughs> All right. Well, good questions, uh, nice. Greg. And um, very quickly, we're running out of time. I wanted to make sure that we covered this one and. Uh, uh, it's item number 13. Liz found this uh, interesting, and it involves an incident in Brazil. It was uh, an A320 uh, at Sao Paulo on the 7th of January, not too long ago. Um, not sure how you pronounce the name of this rodent. Ca- Capybara? Capybara strike on takeoff. Capybara, maybe. I don't know. But it looks like an otter to me. It's, it's just weird-looking critter. It's it's a it's a rat-like rodent, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it is. It's the world's largest rodent, according to Wikipedia. Uh, these things can go from three point four eight to four point four feet in length, and uh, up to like two feet tall, and weigh seventy-seven <laughs> to one hundred and forty-six pounds, or thirty-five to sixty-six kilograms, if you prefer. Uh, there's a big. These are big uh, rodents. Uh, big and rats, yeah, very big rats. Very, very large rats. Well, they're kind of cute, though. They don't look as intimidating to me as a, a regular rat. Uh, I don't well, know. If I'm, they if they flash their long, pointy teeth at you, well, that might be a little intimidating. I don't know. Yeah, you <laughs> here might we go. Be a bit worried. Well, anyway, this was a uh, flight uh, thirty four oh eight from Sao Paulo to uh, Joa Pessoa. I have no idea. How do we how do we say that, Rick? Joao Pessoa. Joao Pessoa. With 136 passengers and seven crew, we're accelerating for takeoff. Runway 27 right when already above V1, the aircraft hit a capybara on the runway. The crew continued takeoff, climbed to 9,000 feet, entered a hold to assess the situation and burn off fuel. Then they returned to Sao Paulo for a safe landing on runway 27 right about 65 minutes after departure. Um... Yeah, they were met by emergency services, towed to the apron. The occurrence aircraft remained on the ground for three days. The runway was closed for about an hour while the runway was cleaned. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The aircraft sustained minor damage. And uh, anyway, um, here I should probably. I wonder if they left the gear down. I don't you know. See, to me, that's the mark of a really good crew. If you think you've hit something on the ground, mm-hmm. not raising the gear, which is, you know, just almost by rote, it's, it would be a very hard thing to do is to deliberately leave the gear down. And I'm wondering if they did. I don't know. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that's always a good point there, Nick. I mean, you put it up, it might not come down. 
So exactly. uh, it's so hard to resist it, though. Around. You know, it's like the automatic call, positive rate, positive rate, gear up. You know, it's like. Yeah. Nope, Remember nope, that well. incident in uh, in uh, in Madrid? I think it was last year or maybe two years ago. It was a 7.6. Uh, I believe it was uh, Air Canada. Uh, they had an issue, an engine issue. Uh, mm-hmm. or, yeah, and they and, didn't uh, put the gear up. They didn't put the gear up at all. They left the gear down the entire yeah, time, which is thinking. great because, you know, it, 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 if you're if you're looking at coming back and landing anyway, it, 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 it helps you burn uh, fuel a little quicker as well. I mean, the, the extra True. drag. So, uh yeah, if you think you hit something, uh, no matter how big your airplane is, if, you, if you've got retractable gear and you think you hit something, leave the gear down because if you put it up, it might not come down. So. It might not. Might be a capybara hanging on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's uh, a, do they eat these? I'm just curious. Oh, well, do do, and does anybody eat rodents? I don't see why not. Uh, I don't know. The fire crew have a barbecue that day? They may have. There's a picture on the screen if you're watching the video, and it looks like a a mama capybara and uh, her uh, youngins. Some sweet little baby capybara. That's so cute. Those mean pilots hitting that air. They do look cute. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of thought they. Don't they? Or am I thinking of a different country? What now? I don't no, know. They eat guinea pigs. That's, oh, that's uh, that's uh, no, that's that's in South America. They're called uh, cooies oh, okay. down there. Yeah, guinea pigs, okay. and they do eat those down there. Uh, when I lived in Ecuador, uh, it was it was it was very very just normal to you just go down and uh, and and they serve them at restaurants and all of them. And I just never could bring myself around to trying one of those, and uh, so I didn't. <laughs> Even I'm, I'm, like I'm fried I'm, on a stick. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm pretty adventurous when it comes to to, to trying new things. But uh, <laughs> but I just what uh, is that? no, I couldn't. So I had I couldn't do it. I had this overlay was, ready to go when we were talking about the attitude indicator and what uh, could possibly happen with it jamming up. And I'm and I forgot that I had this overlay that I was going to show Greg. That's <laughs> actually <laughs> behind the panel. That's what's running the yeah. attitude indicator right there. Yeah, that's what runs a gyro. <laughs> I had to, so, uh, so I had to step away for a, a work phone call real quick there, but I was going to say, um, I think that's what runs it in the, um, you know, the ones that are in your Cessna 172 or whatnot. And actually, the day of my private pilot check ride, um, that hamster quit running. And oh, well, you had have to, to remember to feed it and stuff. You have to yeah, make sure know, that there's... <laughs> I know it was on the checklist and yeah. it was, you know, my job that morning, but yeah. All right. fortunately that <laughs> happened in the morning and the check ride was in the afternoon. We were able to get now, it. If you get oh, low good. suction and the gyro slows down, uh, don't you normally crash down to the right? I'm trying to remember whether it was down on the right or down on the left. Uh, you 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 guys that fly uh, suction driven instruments. You talking about the where the hamster is located? <laughs> yeah. No, the the errors of a slow rotating gyro in a suction driven instrument hmm. will mean that the pilot crashes uh, to the right, or the, oh, it goes low, and they go to the right or left. Oh, okay, thanks. I'm stopping. <laughs> You could eat crickets too. You can. That I've is true. Quite that tasty, dipped mm-hmm. in chocolate. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> well, with that, uh, I think it's yes. It's time to put you out of your misery, dear listeners. <laughs> uh, it's the end of if our you're show. About to start eating your next meal. <laughs> yes. Apologies for that. Uh, start thinking about show titles, everyone, before as we wrap this thing up. So. Uh, Let's see. Thank you for uh, joining us for this episode. If you're here with us live, we do appreciate that. And if you're listening to us recorded, we hope you're enjoying the show. If you want to send us feedback, 
Uh, many different ways to do that. Feedback at AirlinePilotGuy.com is the best. And um, we can also, uh, you can learn more about us by heading over to the website, AirlinePilotGuy.com. Lots of good stuff there. And we're also on the social medias, the social meds. We are indeed. If you would like to join us on social media, head over to Twitter, perhaps. We are at APG Crew. You can find our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of the page there. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And every once in a while, I post stuff to our Instagram page where we are also APG crew. And if you'd like more in-depth conversation and, and all the ins and outs of things going on in the community, perhaps consider Slack. Yeah. The best way to put it is if you're a slacker, you need to check out Slack and, uh, Hillel is the... What if uh, you're a slack slacker? A slack, I'm a very slack slacker. Hey, Hillel! <laughs> Hillel! It's time time for slack. Tell us about slack. Jeff, this is my private time. Uh, okay. Well, could you tell us about it anyway? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Would you let me finish a poop for once? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> just that private For once. Like, just this one time. Just for once. Okay. Uh, I feel so bad. Anyway, um, uh, thank you again, everybody, for downloading, listening, uh, reviewing, and all that jazz. We really appreciate you. You just don't realize how much we love you. And uh, until next time, we- oh, before we do that, the very important yes. thing that I've almost forgotten to do, and boy, I would never hear the end of it. Uh, let's uh, make sure that we congratulate Liz for continuing to, to work for the show. <laughs> yeah, she does so much work behind the scenes. We do appreciate her so much. She just, in fact, it deserves a noisemaker or two. There's, yay. Thank wow. you, Liz, Thank for you everything you do behind the scenes. Much appreciated. I think Jeff had a surplus of I did. I just didn't know what to, to do with them use. all. Put to good use. <laughs> well, it's, it's just been New Year and he couldn't get through. Yeah, true. With that, um, look forward to being here with you again next week. And until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. We'll see you next time. Be careful out there. Bye, buddy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG 
I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats. Airline, not a guy. I fly. I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly